most of us have the same goals, you know, to conserve a lot of the herpetoculture, but we need academia, we need the private hobby, and we definitely need AZA institutions to work well together. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. So, as you guys know, you can get these shirts that I'm wearing right meow on portcitypythons.com. We do have some animals available. If you like ball pythons and want to make my life a lot easier, I have ball pythons for sale, and as well as corn snakes and the normal stuff. But also, we're going to have Amazon links. In the description, all you do is click on the Amazon link, shop as you usually would, and the kickback goes to us, which is awesome, and it supports the podcast, and it supports everything we do here. Or you say, hey, I listen to the podcast, and I'm going to buy a ball python, and then you get a deal because I like you because you listen to the podcast, which is pretty neat. What else do we have to say? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm already lost my attention into the chat because gustavo our friend is here right when it starts and dan and brandon our friend in california is back and the first thing dan said is hey look you have the guy on who has everything and i thought it was (laughs) funny because we were literally just talking about that yeah Um, so i already got sucked into the chat and gustavo is currently trying to vouch for me in quotations for this trade that we're trying to do in florida so gustavo's kind of uh my i don't know what would you call that liaison liaison so thank you for that live on the podcast just so everyone knows my business but, um, whatever if he sells us snakes i'm not trying to hide it that's what i'm saying is there a, the ball pythons uh kudos to whoever sells ball pythons because i swear this has been <laughs> tough. What four oh, days? I've been yeah. <laughs> it's been, it's I've been, been like selling ball pythons for like a week now, and it's, it's <laughs> the fucking worst. Uh, ball pythons people treat like trading cards, and they'll ask you to fucking take their mother's dog and trade their lawnmower, their fucking toothbrush. They don't give a shit. Anything that they can give away to get a pastel bumblebee head for whatever the fuck. They try. So sorry. And I love the ball pythons that we have and that we are selling. But damn, selling them is a pain in the ass. And if you are a ball python guy, I salute you for dealing with it. I don't know how you do it. <clears throat> damn. Maybe they're better at it than us. Maybe there's a lot better. Yeah, maybe we need to Maybe like reputable breeders don't have to go through it. Like, you know. And I'm thankful that corn snakes are different. And when someone goes to buy a corn snake from us, they're buying a corn snake from us because they feel like buying a corn snake. Not that they're worried about too much. They obviously are a little bit worried about the genetics, but they're not. That's not the sole purpose of them reaching out. So thank you to all of our awesome customers who don't try to, you know, we've never traded anything for a corn snake. No one's even asked us, but they are very cheap. So I guess that kind of makes sense. But. That's my little rant, I guess, on the whole ball python thing. I just stop hating on the ball python well, so we much. We should introduce our guest. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So today we are having on Ryan Dumas of Rad Reptiles. 
So Ryan, give us a little intro on what you work with and kind of uh, how you came about your reptile business or hobby. Um, what do I work with a little bit? I, I mostly work with coastal carpet pythons, and my bigger project is working with tigers and exanthics uh, and trying to get those together. Um, but I've kind of been playing around with a lot of different species. Uh, I, about, maybe about a year ago, I decided I needed to try out um, kind of acquire some things, see what I really want to work with and make that long-term co uh, collection plan and kind of stick to that. Um, that's what I'm doing now. Rad Reptiles is just as uh, simple as a lot of people. It's my initials. Um, so that was easy. And it had some nice alliteration, so that worked as well. And um, I think uh, I bred my first clutch in 2015. And, uh, you know, I've been breeding ever since then. It's not that long, but got a lot of cool stuff going on and uh, reptiles have been a part of my life for a long time this is now my 12th or 13th year working in zoos and aquariums so um i just like working with reptiles a lot so have what you, exactly um, do you do in the zoological boo, field go back further oh, have sorry. you always wanted to work in the zoological field that's a fancy way to say it no um i have a different story i guess a lot of people that i think are on a lot of different podcasts so they end up saying you know i grew up catching frogs and snakes and you know i always knew i wanted to like i i mean i caught frogs and snakes i think a lot of little kids do but i didn't that's not what i wanted to do my first year in college i was a finance major um yeah i know lame uh <laughs> we weren't gonna say it so but... boring but uh, it wasn't until uh weirdly enough i was watching a uh, road trip i don't know if you've ever seen that movie but there's a Burmese python that like bites Tom Green and he like, it's a funny scene. He throws it around. He, like, he's like, ah, screaming. And uh, for some reason, it made me want to get a snake. <laughs> so I got like uh, the coolest starter snake ever. I got a ball python. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I loved it. And I was like, how do I get paid to just do this all the time? So, you know, I was in school and uh, thanks. <laughs> Uh, my six-year-old told me I was doing a good job. <laughs> I guess they're watching me in there. Um, oh, so we should definitely not curse. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure you said the SF word already okay. three times. <laughs> uh, well, you know. <laughs> podcast. Um, where was I? Sorry. That's my fault. No, so that Tom Green road trip. Oh, yeah. Right. So I got, and I said, how do you get paid to do this? So, you know, I... I got an intern at the Cincinnati Zoo, and this will give you a little clue as to kind of my age, but in 2001, I was an intern at the Reptile House at the Cincinnati Zoo. Uh, a few years later, I graduated college, and then, then I started working at the Newport Aquarium, which is here in Cincinnati, and then I worked at a lot of different places. Uh, you need to volunteer and get your foot in the door and meet some people and get experience along with your degree to get into the field, but ever since I had that, I keep getting this from the... <laughs> Ever since I wanted, uh, ever since I got that ball python, ever since I started interning, I, I knew that I wanted to get paid to do this. Um, life's too short to have a crap job. At least that's how I've always thought about it. So, I, I mean, I just, I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. So did you end up changing your major or do you just ride out the finance and then all they really wanted was a degree? <laughs> no, 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 no. I definitely changed my major. I got my, I have a BS in biological sciences with a minor in physics. Oh, uh, no, it was, it was always super cool, trippy stuff. It was all it was mostly astronomy, you know, which is always that's a little easier to intake physics wise than, you know, why that ball rose down the hill. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I honestly can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, I lived in um, Washington, D.C. for four years, uh, New York City for a couple of years, and then came back. So I worked at the National Aquarium and then at the Bronx Zoo for a while until I came back here. So is that a field where you kind of have to chase the jobs because there's only so many, you know, jobs available in the field? It depends on what your goals are, for sure. Um, you know, I, I kind of chase the job um, to try to work with different animals. Like when you first, your first job, sometimes, I mean, you got to think how many zoos and aquariums are there. Maybe, you know, I think there's like 250 something AZA accredited zoos and aquariums. That's that's not a lot of herpetology jobs. So there's most likely not going to be anything available by you, by your local zoo, by your local aquarium. Um, so you kind of have to move and kind of get that experience until it brings you around to some place uh, where you kind of find that where you really want to be. And that that's where I'm at now. Like I'm at the Cincinnati Zoo and that's where I want to be, you know, so I don't plan on ever leaving the zoo. Where uh, is that like rank? <laughs> I don't know. On like in his heart, number one. Number one. <laughs> I need the answer to that question. <laughs> It's it's a phenomenal zoo. We have that hippo. I don't know if you're familiar with Fiona, the premature no. hippo that was born. Oh my gosh, there's so much of it around here. But uh, it was a premature hippo that was born at like twenty something pounds. It was two months early, and they nursed it back to health, and it wasn't it had like a two percent chance of living. It's adorable. Look, Google some photos later. I know this is a reptile show, but. I don't know what a regular sized hippo baby would be. So oh, I think it's like eighty pounds. Holy shit! Yeah, they're they're big. They're big animals. Uh, so sweet team that got together and really like saved that thing, and it's brought a lot of attention to our zoo, which is good for everybody. Really, that's pretty crazy. So was your wife always cool with having to move around, or is she doing something similar like that? Uh, how? Did she kind of <laughs> deal with you guys moving around all the time? Well, she didn't. Uh, you know, I just got married last year. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yeah, she didn't have to put up with it. She's a Cincinnati native. <laughs> oh, okay. she got lucky. <laughs> yeah, I got lucky. Um, I'm not an easy person to deal with, so found someone who could put up with me. Uh, she's the best. She's totally supportive in everything I do. She uh, she now works at the zoo. Actually, we both worked at the aquarium, and she went to the zoo. She's a water quality technician. She does a lot of really cool um, uh, water quality testing that was never done there. So she's a lot smarter than me. So something that probably should have been done there before, but wasn't? A lot of, you know, there there's still, it should have been for sure, but they're still way ahead of the game in a lot of zoos and aquariums. I think you'd be surprised. So there's, there's still a lot of improvements that need to be made across the board, but they are stepping those up. We're way ahead of the game. So what's different as far as obviously you keep in your private collection. So what's kind of the difference at the zoo? I mean, is there red tape and stuff that you need to go through when keeping? Are there things that are necessary, unnecessary? Like what's the difference between private keeping and then keeping at the zoo? I think you nailed it right there with the red tape. Like if I want to do something at home, you know, I just have to make sure I clear it with one person. <laughs> at the zoo, it's, it's a whole different, it's a whole nother level of, uh, there's maybe six levels of things that you have to get through in order for something to happen. And that could be for acquiring a new animal or that could be for approving a new diet. You know, if I want to try quail chicks on an animal, I just order some quail chicks and feed them to, to the snakes. But you have to, you know, most zoos, our zoo included, has a nutritionist that uh, kind of evaluates the, the diet 
and make sure that it's not something that's going to uh, harm the animal in any way or that it has it meets the nutritional requirements and then it'll get approved and so it can be pretty tricky and that's just diets and like one of the bigger things we work with is different types of browsing leaves for tortoises you know so we harvest a lot of our own brow so mulberry trees and hackberry and different types that tortoises eat because they're not supposed most of them aren't supposed to have like a very high calorie uh, diet like they're not supposed to have a lot of groceries so there's we work with her to kind of approve all these different things and she does it for every animal's diet at the whole zoo she certainly tries holy crap that's a lot yeah we try to help in our department we definitely try to help by doing the legwork for her and you know, it helps right. us too because it always happens a little faster. You know, if I do the research and provide journal articles and information from other zoos that are using something, it's it's going to get done a little quicker. Right. Like you wouldn't expect her to stay updated on the foremost knowledge of flamingo Everything. diets along with, you know, skink diet. Like, you know, that's just way too much. Neutral. Like there's so many different tortoise or turtles and tortoises. Like how could you... It's very difficult for one person to focus on just that, let alone all the reptiles and then the amphibians and then everything in the zoo. So it's just, it's definitely a high-stress job, I would imagine. But Yeah, it's we, literally nearly impossible. But it's still it's just another level, you know, that you have to go through to get things done. Um, but, I mean, we have a pretty well-oiled machine, and, and we run pretty well, and, and we enjoy it. I mean, there's not much better jobs out there, in my opinion. Um, I think it's the best job. So are there things that you wish you could keep at home or what's kind of at work that you love keeping that you wouldn't necessarily keep at home? Oh, crocodilians by far, by far. I'll never keep one here. Venomous. Um, I think venomous is cool, but I'll never keep it at home. I mean, number one, I have a, a six year old and, and one on the way and I just won't have that in the house. Not that I'm opposed to it personally. I just don't want to. Um, but the cro working with crocs is one of the coolest thing. I'll never be able to keep, you know, an American, cro a twenty-year-old American crocodile at home, just not unless I get lucky and win some lottery, lottery money or something. But those, you know, some of the bigger tortoises we work with a really cool group of Galapagos tortoises, and um, just having the space for them to roam around, it's pretty neat. Yeah. So, is there any? Uh, what kind of species are you working with as far as the crocs go? Uh, American. Right now, we work with uh, American. Alligators, American crocodiles, and Chinese alligators. That's awesome. So, do you do a varied diet with them? Like, what would you typically feed them, and are you in charge of keeping those particular animals? Uh, those particular animals, actually, I am, and I am responsible for. And we do a lot of training with those. Uh, uh, it, it's good enrichment, and it helps us shift them. So, if we need to move a, a large crocodilian, it's always better if we can encourage it to do it itself. You know, instead of us having to you know, drag it somewhere. Um, but I mean, you kind of, anything, we'll offer anything we can find in the freezer, you know, whether it's rabbits, guinea pigs, rats, mice, chicks, quail, uh, smelt, herring, you know, whatever we can kind of find. Um, a lot of times we even use like, I mean, she's a 28 year old American alligator and we'll give her adult mice. It's, I mean, it's real small, but it's part of the wow. training, you know, cause you don't get a lot of repetition when you're training with reptiles because they don't eat that much i mean and we fast them for three months out of the year uh, as part of their natural you know cycle even though we're not trying to breed them it's, it's just better for them they sync up pretty well with the with the weather so you pretty much brewmate them in the winter yeah. is that what you're saying i think we try to do that with as many species as possible because we're in a temp the temperate climate here 
makes it difficult. And uh, even in those are in a different building, but even in our in the reptile house at the Cincinnati Zoo, it's the oldest zoo building in the country. It was opened in like 1874. So there are some hiccups with working in such an old building, um, such as, you know, it's not super well insulated necessarily. So uh, it works well with brewmating them because sometimes you couldn't keep the temperature up that high all the time. Yeah. So what temperature are you trying to reach? Because obviously we know with colubrids, we're trying to be around 50 degrees. Um, with the alligators, are you trying to get to somewhere between that same mark? No, we just kind of go with uh, what the weather does for us. I mean, the, the bigger crocodilians are kept in a big greenhouse. Uh, so we kind of just let the natural kind of weather. There's HVAC, there's an HVAC system in there that, you know, we can keep it at most roughly at most temperatures. But um, it's a lot better because you never know if there's a power outage. Uh, if you just fed that, even if you're keeping them at 80 all year, uh, you just fed that animal and there's a power outage. I mean, uh, you, you want them to be able to metabolize that food. And, and even if there's a slight possibility that they wouldn't metabolize that food because the, uh, you know, the temperature dropped overnight. I don't want to even entertain that possibility. So it makes sense from a longevity standpoint. I think, uh, I don't know the paper, but I also just personally believe that brumating animals, it increases their lifespan. Um, I think it's a very natural part of uh, their life cycle that needs to, needs to occur. But no, we don't typically hit any, we don't look for any uh, temperature specific temperatures we kind of just go with what the the environment will give us sometimes it doesn't need a whole lot if we're trying to actually breed something sometimes you don't even need very much uh temperature drop like a specific one you might only need five or ten degrees mm -hmm. so are there any animals that you do have captive breeding programs for uh Sorry, I wasn't prepared to talk so much about work. But oh, I, so, I mean, we can move <laughs> on. I'm just, no, I'm just following my curiosity. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. This is part of what uh, happens when there's no script. I'm like, you ask me a question, I'll go, uh, hold on. Yeah, I didn't know zoos uh, do breeding. No, of course. We've got a keeper who's doing pretty well with some dart frogs. we got a lot of that going on. I think uh, we definitely want to breed our king cobras this year. Um. It always, we have some lace monitors at work. It would be it would be really cool to get something moving with them. But uh, right now we are more or less going through our collection plan, very similar to my own personal collection. I'm trying to gear, see where we're going in the future. And that's it's not as easy as at home. At home you just try to say like, what would be really cool to work with? What fits my space? Um, and you're kind of looking at at your uh, at what's available and and what you can handle. Whereas in a zoo, there's a there's taxon advisory groups for every specific. Uh, there's an amphibian taxon advisory group, colonian, croc, snake, lit, like it, it's for everything, and they develop these regional collection plans that you're supposed to use to help like develop that collection plan. And so you have to use that as well as like what you think is cool, so that you're kind of helping out. You you know, helping the system, you, but also bringing some cool stuff in that's going to get you motivated too. So it's just, we're going through that kind of scenario right now. So our collection plan's a little in flux. That's something that I see happening in, say, not very communities within the private sector, but something in like Boland's, uh, say, cooperation between private keepers in order to kind of figure out how to breed these animals. Like, how can we take that mentality or is it too much to take that mentality into the private sector? 
Oh, I would love, I think there are three strong suits in herpetology that all need to work together in order to like reach a lot of the, I mean, we all have, most of us have the same goals, you know, to concert, to conserve a lot of the, uh, a lot of the herpetoculture, but we need academia, we need the private hobby, and we definitely need AZA institutions to work well together. Easier said than done. I think there's a, I think a lot of private keepers um, are, are better at keeping certain species than most zoo, than a lot of zoo keepers, you know, but the scenarios are different. Yeah, when you have a Bolens python at home, you have complete control over what you do with that. If you're a zookeeper one and you're managing a, you know, an entry level zookeeper and you're managing a Bolens python, you don't have a typically have a, a terribly large amount of freedom to kind of do what you want. And also, a lot of times you're tasked with making that animal visible at home. I'm not worried about making them visible. I want them to be happy and healthy and you know feel secure. But sometimes you have it's tough to find that balance when you people need to see them and. You're really not going to have a big impact on somebody if they see an empty Bones Python tank. But if they see one, they're like, oh, my gosh, that is awesome. And I mean, I could imagine that's what you figure is a big thing is dealing with the stress level, kind of not interacting with the animal too much, not having them feel vulnerable and stuff like that. When you're talking things like Bolens pythons or scrub pythons or things that generally kind of freak out when you go near them. But yeah, yeah. And then and those, all those things, too. You know, uh, to provide enrichment levels for all these different animals as well. And, you know, I think it's important. And enrichment can be something very, very uh, easy. It could be something like stirring up the substrate. You know, when snakes are on it for a while, sometimes they mat it down. That's enrichment. You're encouraging them to sniff around and redig and, and do that kind of stuff. But those are things that we need to do and are documented. Uh, we provide UV light for almost every animal we have. Um, so it's just, it's a whole different animal. But at some point, I think I, I, there are some zoos working with private individuals currently, and, and I think it works out well most of the time. Uh, I think there's a Turtle Survival Alliance works with the private sector, and they work really well with people who are, you know, legitimate. Uh, you just have to be very, very cautious. There's a lot of liability. I, very, very few people are ever going to be loaned crocodiles or venomous snakes. It's, it'll always be something small and relatively harmless. And I'm um, never going to be the person who's like, yeah, everyone in the public sector, because there should definitely be a barrier to entry, you know, knowing. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be a select few private hobbyists if it ever catches on, for sure. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tricky situation that'll take a long time to develop, but I, I think it's a good relationship to have, for sure, to have that in your back pocket, because zoos run out of space, too. And I was wondering what you felt about the kind of relationship between you know, things that we've had come up more so now than have in the past is things like UV, things like keeping in tubs, things like what cage size, all stuff like that. The so, amount of lighting. So what do you think is necessary or unnecessary or, you know, what do you do at home that you wouldn't do at the zoo, vice versa? Well, I mean, I have a lot more resources at work than I do at home. Um, as one probably knows, zookeeping is not where you go to make money. Um, so at the zoo, you'll have a lot more resources. And I think you, you know, if you, at home, if you have the ability to give every animal UV, to give every animal that enrichment to, wouldn't you? If you had that opportunity, if you had the money, you had the time to do it, I think most people would. Um so at the zoo, I, I have those opportunities, and I and I make the best of it, and and I try to provide every animal with enrichment opportunities, with UV lighting of some of some kind. You know, you're just trying to provide choices. At home, do I think it's necessary? I'm not sure yet. I think there's the jury's still out. 
do I think it hurts? No. <laughs> so I don't see why not. Um, I would love to have UV on everything, but um, personally, I like to put as many adult animals in cages as I can uh, just because I like to look at them. You know, I like to see them, and I don't know if that's better for the animal or for me, but uh, they seem to be all right with it. I, um, I have nothing again wrong with pups, personally. Yeah, I think there's an obvious argument in which someone would say, hey, then maybe you shouldn't have a hundred snakes. Maybe just have three and provide all those things for them. So it's hard, and we wrestle with this. You know, we obviously have numbers of snakes, right? And yeah, yeah I could have just the olive python, and I can make this whole damn room a crazy bioactive enclosure. Mm -hmm. Like, what is necessary, what is not? I wish I could have all three-foot enclosures for my corn snakes or something like that, but I don't see that happening. So should I keep 100 corn snakes, or should I keep three? I don't know. As long as, as, long as they are, they are outwardly healthy. You know, I don't see the problem with it. Honestly, I I just don't. And everyone's entitled to their opinion. You're allowed to think that someone's allowed to think that you're not you shouldn't be keeping animals in tubs. And someone's also allowed to say, you know, well, I think having something in a decked out bioactive aquarium is is for you, not them. You know that I don't really care. You know what other people think I do. I try to keep my animals healthy. Uh, occasionally I try to enrich them at home. I try to enrich them. I offer them different food sources. Um, I take them outside sometimes. I think they look best outside. That's a perfect place for photos. Um, I think it's to each their own. You know, I, I stay pretty quiet on those things on, on Facebook because, I mean, that, nothing ever good, nothing good usually comes out of having a strong debate unless it's an obvious answer. Is there like... um continuing education classes for zoo workers <laughs> uh in what capacity what do you mean i don't know like as a teacher i have to go to i have to do a certain amount of hours just to stay up to certified, date right just yeah. to stay certified oh, yeah. or, you know well you know every five years an entire zoological facility is up for accreditation through the aza the association of zoos and aquariums and that's a big accreditation because it opens a lot of doors for you, and they really do at this point in time. Them and the ZAA have the highest uh, level, require the highest level of care, um, and they and they make you prove it, and then they come in and make sure you're doing it. Uh, so that's you're always trying to stay up to date there. So you know, I've gone to an AZA crocodilian training course where they where they teach me a ton of stuff down in St. Augustine. I've been to AZA um, amphibian courses, management courses, conservation courses. They have there's a lot of great stuff. I'm going to a population management course this fall so that I can uh, uh, create a new stud book for a species we recently collected called the Pascagoula map turtle. Um, we went and collected an assurance colony of those in Mississippi this year. They have some pretty dwindling populations. Um, so that those are just a few of the classes, you know. And yeah, then that's awesome. They have some of those. They're not free. Um, but I don't pay for them, so that's good. <laughs> so they're uh, not required? You're doing it on your own, or they are required? They're not required, but uh, they're highly encouraged. And, you know, any new keeper, I would encourage them to look through and, and ask if it's in the facility's budget to go to those types of things. Because not only are you learning things, but you're connecting with a lot of other uh, people who are learning, but a lot of people who are teaching as well. And you're networking with people who have been keeping crocs a long time or keeping amphibians along, whatever it may be. And there's a lot of knowledge to gain from that. Yeah, definitely. And do you get the opportunity to do field work? 
Uh, I definitely. I mean, I just uh, I was just down in Mississippi in May. So you uh, we went collect, to collect those turtles. I did, and I went through the whole process of um, working with the taxon advisor group. So it's a candidate species. So there's not there's only four in captivity. So we had to go get some more to make an assurance colony, and then you know we look at the long term viability. How many do we need to to make sure that we have a sustainable genetic variability? Um, a variance moving forward. So what we look for is 90% genetic diversity over a hundred years and we needed at least 20. So, um, we collected, a, uh, we collected the, as many as we needed for the insurance colony, assurance colony and, uh, most of them young so that we didn't affect the uh, reproductive population. But we went down there. I applied for the permits. I was, I was helped at work to get those permits. I worked with uh, an awesome guy named Dr. Will Selman at Millsaps College, who's like the king of map turtles and uh, one of the king, one of the kings. There's a few. And uh, we, it was very successful and, and very cool. It was my first real foray into the field uh, to do that kind of stuff. And so I think there will be more opportunities available. That's awesome. So out of those 20, does that then you guys kind of distribute those to other zoos in order to make some type of breeding plan between all you guys? Yep. Um, you know, I've got, some are going to go out to like a San Diego zoo, some to hopefully Sedgwick County Zoo, things like that. Um, uh, but uh, part of going to these population management classes, is it, it'll help me develop a publish a stud book, but then it'll also give me the resources I need when it's time because it's going to be a while before the breeding age. Um, to create a breeding and transfer plan. Uh, is, so we'll look at the genetics everywhere and make recommendations. Hopefully I will, I'll be selected as a coordinator for that um, and make recommendations on where these animals should go to, to give us the best, the genetically best offspring. This might be a dumb like question. For a lot of different species. This might be a dumb question, but what's a stud book? It's basically just a collection of um, the animal, the animals in, an, in a given population. And they're all assigned a number, uh, and all the information is there and where they have. So a stud book is basically just an inventory okay. of, now, of a species. Is this like other turtle species as far as the reason why they're having trouble surviving is because the long, you know, I guess, life cycle. And it takes, uh, say, a spotted turtle, you know, maybe it takes 20, 10, or 10 to 20 years to breed, and it's hard to get to sexual maturity. Is that kind of the same deal with these map turtles? Somewhat. Um, the biggest problem with these particular, the Graptemis gibbonsi, the Pascagoulamap turtles, is that um, they're megacephalic, so they have huge heads. So that means they specialize in a lot of like hard-bodied prey, like uh, different bivalves and crustaceans and, and things like that. And there's a lot of clear-cut logging in that area, which increases the siltation, which affects that prey item. And since that's their primary prey, um, that's like one of the first things to be affected by pollution and siltation. So there's a lot of siltation there, and and they're, we've seen their numbers drop over the last 20 years pretty substantially. Um, so it's basically prey availability, and will they adapt quick enough to hang on? And we got out in front of it, um, so now we have that assurance colony, and uh, someone will always be able to see them. And they're cute little turtles. Awesome, and they just in Mississippi? Yes. Okay, so they're all they're only found in the Pascagoula River drainage. There you go. Mississippi has something to be proud of. <laughs> <laughs> they got a lot of cool stuff down there. Uh, I'm thinking of wildlife and stuff. Okay. <laughs> right. Wildlife. Same as Louisiana. Um, there's a lot of species in Louisiana. Yeah, there's a lot of 
more stuff other than reptiles. There's one about. city in Louisiana pine snake. You're not allowed so. to shit on Louisiana in this podcast. Oh, sorry. Or ever. <laughs> we are better. Well, we are better than Mississippi and Alabama. That's there you go. Number th- we got a we got a sports team. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, we're forty eight. 48 whatever how many states are there 49 alabama's 50 we're 48 no mississippi we're not last yeah exactly what we are always proud of growing up is that we are not last yeah i think kentucky growing up was like 47th so i don't (laughs) (laughs) that's true good old south you know whatever (laughs) but as far as i mean there's not many things that honestly in reality a captive keeper in the private sector can do for conservation i mean if there is anything like what do you think a person a regular human being like me or her could do for conservation as a whole you know we don't work at a zoo we don't have any ties to a zoo what can we do as reptile keepers i think your very first step should be to reach out to your local herb society and see what's going on there a lot of times they have something established and a lot of times people think conservation and they think, oh, I'm going to go out and like mark turtles and, you know, catch frogs. And a lot of it's just like clearing a damn field of, of um, honeysuckle so that the habitat can be restored and be reused for like Massasauga rattlesnakes. And uh, a little goes a long way. So I think volunteering out of that stuff is a great, I mean, if you can, there's also, I mean, um, Howard Redding, that's a guy who's involved in a ton of cool uh, conservation he Jeff Frederick never heard of him <laughs> yeah, I do I have you know buying t-shirts I mean that <laughs> seems like the easy way out right 15 bucks for a t-shirt I mean that's what this is it's the desert tortoise council and that money goes to help them do the work that they do which I'm not a super clear on and I just really like the t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> I should probably look more into that um but I you know I met some of the people at the last turtle survival alliance conference meeting and um you know, they they were very energetic people, and I had no problem giving them 15 bucks for a T-shirt. But I think reaching out to your herb society is is really important. I mean, that you're look, there's a whole mess of people that are going to be in your herb society potentially, from real old keepers who just like doing that to maybe your state herpetologist you might meet there, to a lot of young kids that you can, you know, give positive feedback on reptiles and stuff and kind of make sure uh, that they're going in the right direction with things. Um, and then usually if you got a good president, of those surf societies, they're setting those types of things up. Um, so, you know, have you ever heard of the Nerodio? No. Nope. I know. Isn't it the best, the best uh, name ever? Sounds so, I mean, like... water snake. By the oh, way. I was about yeah. to say, it sounds like something that is passed between. People. I think it's every year. There's, uh, I forget the, <laughs> the person's name who does the study, but they work with Lake Erie water snakes. And they need to catch as many as they can. So they have a Nerodio, and you go up and you, you catch them, and you help them scan the um, the pit tags and, and record all the information. If it doesn't have one, then you let them know they, they pit tag it. And that's an easy one if you want to get really lit up. Yeah, they just want people to get bit and shit on constantly. Yeah. Hey, that's a cool way to do some conservation. Yeah. But- yeah. That would be my first step is to do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, any of the fundraisers at the zoo – do kind of those kind of things if you want, but I think your herb society is probably your best bet for as a civilian to get involved. I think that's it's, something that maybe we don't. It, maybe we don't do a great job at is the fact that those kinds of things are kind of barely hanging on at this point. 
And um, I personally have never really been involved in that former fashion well, we've talked to them at nrbc we've talked <laughs> to the them most... but yeah it's always and it's um... always a really cool talk like whenever we talk to them they know so much and it's cool but they, we don't really go much it's about. something that we need to do better on actually following up and if there's some someone yeah. knows someone in pennsylvania i'd be glad to... yeah we haven't even reached out to the pennsylvania i know that there's a good one in kentucky i believe and well, which is somewhere here. near here but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but look at you guys, um, you know, you, you provide a lot of information to the hobby. I mean, you'd have a lot to offer to a local herb society and um, even younger kids that are getting excited about stuff. You know, we see a lot of 10 to 15 year olds at, at the herb society here. Um, and those are like the people that you want to connect with and just share. But it's also tough on a hobbyist level as well. If, you know, because it's not like reptiles take up some time. <laughs> so and then you probably have some other hobbies. So it's hard to fit it all in. For me, I can't get enough. So I go to work. I work with reptiles. I get home and I take care of my collection. And then, you know, at the, and then I'm at the Herb Society meeting as well. And I, I mean, I just can't get enough. I mean, yeah, we do that, but we do it in like different, just through the internet, as far <laughs> as videos, as far as talking to podcasts people. and stuff like that. Or shows is a big thing, obviously. It's a lot of time, though. Yeah, no, you guys put in a lot of time. I mean, you can tell. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> At least you can tell. So let's talk about. I guess we could switch to, to your collection. <laughs> Finally, we talked we can... about the zoo for forty minutes. So I want to hit probably black rats first because obviously that's something that you have uh, breeding age and you produce. So when did you get into black rats? Kind of how did you get into that project and Speak a little bit about the special uh, blue-eyed Amel that you have. That's a good segue, and, I, and you'll see why in a second. Because uh, back when I was an intern at the Cincinnati Zoo Reptile House, again, since this will be probably one of the last time to talk about the zoo, it's it's in my opinion the best reptile house and the best Cincinnati and the best zoo. <laughs> um, number but one. There was, there was a keeper there. Yeah, number one. Uh, there was a keeper there who um, had. Brought in some black rat snakes from ever from Glades Herp, if you remember that name at all. Um, they were normals. They bred them to to make food for king cobras and stuff. And a couple of albinos popped out. This was like in the mid to late nineties. So you know, keeper at the time, he's not there anymore. Um, he's retired. He uh, took a pair of the albinos home, and uh, I was given a pair. And when I finished my internship that he bred, and when I moved, I had to get rid of them. And when I moved to D.C. and stuff, uh, upon coming back, you know, I met one of the volunteers that was at the zoo. And she had some of those animals, and she asked if I'd be interested in taking some of those on. Um, she had no interest in necessarily breeding them. She was just keeping them, and she had quite a few building up. And I was like, well, of course, because I'd love to have those animals back. And um, so she gave me a, a male and a female, and the female was your typical AML-looking black rat snake, but the male is very odd-looking, and he's a, he's a very dark albino. He's got a lot of red to him. He's, he's incredibly different, and maybe on my Facebook page you can see the differences in those two, um, but he's very dark, and then he has blue eyes. And the thing of it is, is they're, they're brother and sister from different clutches, but from the same grandparents and the same parents. Uh, so whatever's in there is, I'm thinking it's, unless it's, he might just be something very unique. Um, and it's not a proven trait 
but all the babies that I've hatched out two years in a row now have been normal looking amels. But I mean, they glow, man. They just, they definitely have a look to them. So last year I didn't hold any back like an absolute idiot. Uh, so I was about I to say, yeah. Have you read them back? Yeah, no, no, no. I kept six this year. So <laughs> I'm not going to make the same mistake twice, but um, it's just such a cool line. Uh, and I'm excited to see where it goes. So I have to breed the, number one, I have to breed the babies back to themselves. But also I need to get a nice big regular eastern rat so that I can just see if he breeds with her, you know, what comes out. So I didn't think it through very much. But, you know, now that I have more time, you know, and when you say it out loud, it sounds like really dumb. <laughs> like, oh, man, I probably sh- I, pr- I probably added years to this project. but Yeah, just a couple, but. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I'm not in it for money or whatever. I just I'm interested to see what happens, and they're cool snakes. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, I if people if people don't know, I mean, amels, you shouldn't have any blue eye. I mean, you should have pink eye, red eye all the time. So, I mean, that doesn't seem like anything that we see as possible in any other snakes. I don't know any other snakes that would come out amel while still having you know, some type of color in the eyes or anything like that. Um, it's something that you see, obviously, in leucistics and stuff like that. So, I mean, is it possible that it's just some crazy happenstance? or It could, it could be a crazy, weird individual, just a unique specimen in his own right, or who knows, there could be something. But it'll really be interesting to find out breeding the offspring back to each other, but also, again, I need to acquire a, a big female and see what happens there. Um yeah, so who knows? But you know, they're available. I have a few available, but I don't charge a ton of money for those things because it's not a proven trait. It could be, you know. So maybe it'll work out for somebody down the line. But you know, I'm not trying to make a million dollars here, so and it's, you can't. It's black rats, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, me and you care. Maybe can't. A few I love people. black rat snakes, man. They they are just some of my favorites. Yeah, um, I always like stare at uh, Iman. Um, that guy from Germany that has like a really awesome, like lines of different mutations for black rats. I always like look at his stuff. Like, damn, that's that's good looking stuff, man. The most messed up things is that even in corn snakes, um, Europe tends to have the best looking colubrids because they seem to have the okay. they care a little bit more than us. I feel some people. I think, that's a, I think that's a pretty broad generalization. I've seen some yeah. absolutely remarkable corn snakes here. I've got a pair of Sherman line Okies that I thought were going to set the tub on fire. I mean, those things are just, whew, you know? <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe I'm not as into it with it. But, yeah, I mean, the bigger people, sure. But I think there's more people here working with them. And yeah. we get drowned out. Like, how many breeders of corn snakes do you know of in Europe? I can and think how many of like no here. True. I can only think of two that have some really amazing. Yeah, but I look at the Calubri classifieds, I'm like, oh I love that. Let's check it out. And it's always available at ham every single time. I'm like, what the yeah. hell is going well, you on? You notice the stuff that's rarer, that that's yeah, not yeah. I would think, but I'm not saying they're not doing a great job over there, but you know, give ourselves some own, some of our own love here. <laughs> well, I think that Morelia is something that we have kind of the same issue with as far as not an issue, but it's kind of cool because I feel like people have really gone hard on things like uh, Balin with the Reds and stuff like that that haven't been touched as much in Australia because they have a little bit more to work with. So. Oh, absolutely. Um, Morelia is just such a... It's like the coolest python and one of the more 
infuriating pythons at sometimes. Um, you know, I, I like having locality stuff if possible, and there's just no such thing. Like, um, you can have locality types and you have a pretty good background, but no one can give you like collecting information and background lineage on most carpet pythons back to there's, I'm sure there's a few people and I don't mean to generalize, but you know, even the most well lineage snakes, you can't go back and see when the hell they were imported from Australia. You know, you, you just can't. So, um, you know, and then there's always, you know, the genetics behind it, you know, the subs, the purest versus the non pure. I mean, I tend to keep mine more pure, um, coastal wise, but that's because I really only work with coastals and, um, I don't have a problem with whatever anyone wants to do either. If you want to mix stuff up and make some cool looking shit, do it. Um, it's just, I don't want to do it. At least someone's doing it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Morelia, I mean, a carpet pythons are what got me into it. And in the coastal Exanthic, once I saw one in person, I was like, need that. Definitely need that. And it was like my first big purchase. And uh, at the time I was pretty, we were all pretty sure that it was a recessive gene and that's a whole different debate. Um, so that's why I made the investment in. I loved it and it was recessive. I thought it would hold its value longer and it'd be a nice long project for me to work on. And it still is a nice long project for me to work on. Like I can't wait to see Xanthic tigers, Xanthic tiger jags. I mean, they're going to look stellar, you know, but um, I'm just rambling now. Save me guys. As a, as a purist, where do you get a pure jag? A pure jag? Yeah. What do you mean? I feel like that's been bred in and out of everything for the last 15 years. Yeah. I mean, again, yeah. Is it pure? Like, where was the jag originated? Yeah. We, I think we know the story behind it. just miraculously popped up somewhere. But Well, they all was trace the back to a miraculous event that happened somewhere in Europe. Yeah, there's a mysterious portal in Europe where things just pop up. Um, but overall, I mean, I think they're there i mean they're just such a hardy species of python i think they have an awesome looking almost like prehistoric head you know and the scalation on it is amazing and there's just there's so many flavors to work with um i i, I just think they're they're awesome it's hard not to get all of them how many clutches have you produced and when did you start producing carpets uh like 2015 is when i produced uh carpets and i think i haven't I'm not very uh a well-seasoned breeder by any means. I think I've had uh, four or five clutches of carpets. Uh, three have been exanthics, coastal to a, a, um, a homozygous exanthic to um, a non-exanthic. And I've had three clutches out of those particular pairings. And then uh, I did a jungle, jungle jag to a coastal jungle cross. Um, it was my first clutch. I always wanted to do jungle jags, and then I wanted to. The percentage thing was killing me. I didn't. I was like, these are sixty-two point five percent jungle jags and crosses, and make sure you let everyone know that. And, and then I'm just like, ah, these are coastal. Very crazy. Yeah, um, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a purist because I'm not against it. I just happen to only want to work with coastal exanthics and tigers. But. And now, to beat the dead horse, when you did the homozygous exanthic to the regular coastal, did the hats look exanthic or halfway there? Varying degrees. There are some that look like they are absolute exanthics, like homozygous exanthics. And there are some that look like they may not be. And, I mean, just by that definition alone, um, 
I think it fits more into the incomplete dominant category. I think there needs to be a lot more work done to sufficiently call it, but I, I think it's pretty obvious at this point. And um, I've talked with some other big breeders, some who disagree and some who completely agree. And, you know, all of them have been very, very respectful and I've been respectful back. So that's one of the cool things about a lot of the people in the Morelia communities that you're allowed to disagree and then not hate each other and go all off on each other. You're just allowed to have a, a difference of opinion. Um, in my particular scenario, I mean, my eyes don't lie, I don't think. So, I mean, it, it's really obvious. If you produce, um, if you use a homozygous exampic to a normal, you're going to, my my thoughts are you're going to see plenty of um homozygous looking animals you'll see some variation of hypoxanthism in all of those babies and as they shed they just get more and more hypoxanthic looking i was just cleaning before i got up here and some of the clutch on the clutch from this year and i was like i mean this thing looks i got you could sell it as an exanthic as a homozygous animal so i don't know and then we'll how see. do you i guess the question is how do you end up marking that animal for sale personally i mean I'm, i make sure that the the pairing is known. I think that's one of the more important things that a lot of Morelia people do is they make sure that you know um, what's put in, what was put into that. So you know the history of the in, of the parents, and um, you know I, I see them as the same type of gene as uh, the caramel gene in carpets. There's caramel and super caramel. Do I like those names? Not really, but it's the way it kind of is. And so I kind of refer to any animals as exanthics and super exanthics, but in parentheses I always put homozygous or heterozygous in there. So there's no mixing. Uh, there's no, shouldn't be any confusion at that point. It might be a little, but you'll know if there's one copy of the gene or two copies of the gene. Now, I don't think anyone is following suit, but I don't really care. Um, I'm not trying to, I'm honestly not trying to like do some kind of marketing thing, but I, I, to be congruent with other incomplete dominant, like it's not like anyone says this is a het caramel or het zebra, you know? So, so you, I mean, but you're doing your due diligence so that the buyer knows what they're getting, and that's all that really matters, isn't it? That's absolutely number one. Yeah, that's the one thing I hope people who've done business with me understand that I'm very, very upfront, very, very clear. If I have a jag, I, you know, I express every little bit of potential neurological problems that it may have. If they're not aware, I'll make sure they know. If one's exhibiting a little bit, I let them know, or I don't sell it. Um, everybody knows what they're getting uh, if they purchase something from me. Uh, I just. I really stake a lot of reputation on being very honest and truthful. Absolutely. So now, since we can move on after the Xanthic stuff, um, yeah. Inlands, Brisbane's, um, Darwin's, do you work with locality stuff as well? Nope, just coastals. Okay. I honestly don't have a lot of carpet pythons. Um, I have three species of Morelia, but uh, just coastal carpets. And then as far as... Um, what was I going to say? Damn it. Uh, Morelia. And did you hop into Lyases? I saw that obviously you got Mac lots and stuff like that. Um, kind of where'd you go from carpets? Uh, you know, I started really liking a lot of different things. And I wanted to see what I would like to work with because in my brain, you know, working in zoos for long enough, you realize that having a collection plan is solid. Um, otherwise, I feel like if you don't have some sort of collection plan, um, you're just going to like just keep buying cool shit as you see it and without any real thought. And it's different when you take some time and put some actual thought into see either things you want to produce or things you want to work with. And, you know, I'd love to 
to be able to produce anthill pythons every other year and be able to have some of those. And so I've got a pair of those and those aren't going anywhere. Those are awesome little snakes. Um, so I put some thought into it and, and I couldn't make up my mind uh, because a lot of the species that I think I wanted to work with, I'd never really worked with. Um, now, so I just made the decision to acquire a lot of different things and see what I really wanted to work with um, until I've had either I've had them for you know, six months or so or and I'm really getting to, you know, get into them and see what they're like. And uh, if I don't like, even if I do like them, sometimes I just, I know I'm not going to have the space. Like I'm realizing now with a kid on the way that my space and time are limited. Um, my snake room is not big. I mean, it's maybe eight by six. It's not a very big, big room at all. And the, even though I really love Maclaws pythons, looking down the line, I, I can't see any way. I can fit three badass lasses pythons yeah. into that room, unfortunately. So that's half I'm not room gonna, off the bat. I'm not going to beat around the bush, if, and I'll start making room now. Um, but I've pretty much streamlined what I want to get out of my collection, and, and I'm pretty close to solidifying it. So what are you thinking of besides maybe size as far as what you want to work with? And is there any shame in kind of trying things out? Trying, there's never a shame in trying things out. Um, I, I think that you just need to put in the, t the forethought before you just impulse, like impulse buys happen. Um, it's not always a bad thing, but I think if you plan it out and say like, these are the species I'd like to work with. And then when you see a, some available with some good, you know, good stock, good background, good seller, reputable breeder, then you go for it. You know? And if you don't like it, I mean, why do you have to keep it? That's so silly. I'm not worried about what other people and can't are you talking to sell me things that are pointless. Well, no, I just collection. like everything that I have, though. That's because you're story. a sneak like order. Why get rid of exactly? Because uh, it's not supposed to take over the whole house. What? We don't have I, kids. He, he said he has yeah, kids. Yeah, got the time. If there's any, if there's ever a time in your lives you could stock up on shit and be hoarders, it's literally right now. Because it doesn't get any yeah, easier. Yeah, but I'm not allowed to be a hoarder for other shit, but he's a snake hoarder. Don't you like it too, though? No. Oh, I, didn't, I thought you liked <laughs> reptiles. I mean, yeah. I don't... <laughs> Indifferent, maybe, a good... I, I mean, uh... yeah. Like, if he tomorrow was like, okay, I'm selling everything, I'd be like, okay. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I like what we have, and I am partly the reason we have some of the ones we have. Like it's been she's my... gotten me into projects, but my, but, but see the thing is, the ones I've bought and purchased and like sought after are things that are for projects. He has stupid shit that is going to do nothing for us. Stupid shit like olive pythons and Which water pythons and I'm all sorry, the cool it's stuff. Stupid. Having the olive python is stupid to me. Because it's not like we're keeping it in this big, beautiful cage where we see it all the time. And Yet. we're not going to breed it. So it's something that we're not doing anything with that sits in a tub. All right. I so it's it's going it's, it's going in a six-foot cage in the living room. You got it. I hear you. Loud and clear. I also don't want it in a cage to take up more space. That's, that's another reason why it's stupid. Because oh, man. <laughs> I just think it's pointless. Why do we have this wall? I mean, the water python's beautiful and the all python's beautiful. Totally. I understand their beauty. But what is their purpose? 
you ask, what is my purpose of my 15 pairs of shoes? Yeah. What is the purpose of your office? Right what? You only have oh, 15. That was, That's that being... Was, I, was, yeah. I was definitely oh, she's rounding, rounding down. down. <laughs> she's rounding down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. We have a, she oh takes goodness. up two and a half closets in the house, all right? She has a dresser and takes up two and a half closets. I have like half Not a closet half, with two. my clothes. Two. Oh, and you all will. That's not going to change, man. Anyway, less about us. What the hell? <laughs> but well, anyways, what do you call your group of snakes? It's your collection. collection. Yeah, you're collecting. Sometimes that's the reason you have shit. <laughs> Sometimes that makes me feel more hoardy than other <laughs> things, though. If that's a word. Hoardy sounds weird. Hoardy. <laughs> real hoardy. I think that's a nice new word we just developed or you developed. <laughs> Um, I think it might have already been developed, but to describe a different action. I don't know what you're talking the about. The W. What? Hoard. Right. Whatever the hell you're Sounds thinking. Sounds like an urban dictionary definition. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. You really don't, or you're joking? I'm not sure, but I won't say anything. Okay. So, how about... <laughs> Back on track. <laughs> what were we talking about? Jeez. Um, keeping different types of things and trying them out, but be willing to sell them when you don't need them. Yeah, if it's not going to work, if it's not going, if you're not getting anything out of it, especially, but it also, you know, realizing your space requirements and your food requirements, and you know, I've kind of gotten to the point where hopefully everything I have will eat small rats, and that'll be the largest thing I have to stock my my fridge with, especially because medium rats seem to be like a million dollars, but. You know, I'm focusing on more a smaller species of bows and pythons and, and a few select colubrids. That's that's what I'm working. That's my plan. And some are just weird. So you, you know? mentioned uh, anthill pythons. So are anteresia, is that something that's attractive to you in general? Yes. And I had put up my Cape York spotted pythons a while ago, but I, you know, put them up for a fairly high price because I don't really want to sell them. But um, I made the decision recently and it's a fluid making these decisions is a fluid process sometimes um but realizing recently that i'm not going to get a whole lot of more space anytime soon like i'm looking at least five years until maybe the new kid goes to kindergarten <laughs> you know that maybe about the time i'll have be able to enlarge the herp room and in that time i will not be able to keep these maclots not as well as i'd like to keep them and i'd rather give them i'd rather sell them and and put them into the hands of someone who would be more interested and have more resources to do that while letting me still keep a nice diverse collection of smaller animals. Um, it doesn't mean I don't like them. It doesn't mean that I'm going to take a hot offer real quick. I'm not, I mean, they're still small now, but um, yeah, I mean, I need, I, I made some decisions and I stick to them. I'm not really worried about what other people think. I'm more worried about how it affects me and my, my personal life. I mean, I know but Anthorita are pretty cool. Sorry, I went off <laughs> the rails. Uh, but yeah, I really like anthill pythons. I've always wanted anthill pythons. And they are just cool and super mean little snakes. Um, they just, they're hungry all the time. But man, they just, they look awesome. They have attitudes. I just love them. Uh, I really do. I don't, I don't foresee myself getting all species. Um, I like what I have, and I, I think I'm going to stick to them. If I got more anteresia, it would probably be more pretensive to anthills, because um, I think it'd be cool to be able to produce 
uh, a clutch every year alternating, you know, from adults. And I think that that's something that, although the spots in children's have become very plentiful as far as uh, people breeding them, that's still an animal that probably for good reason as far as getting baby star and stuff like that hasn't really taken off to the degree of the spotted or the children's. I'm sorry. I just got a wife text. Are you in trouble? No. Yes. No. We'll see. Oh. Um, anyway, what was that question? Oh, it's not your fault. It's my <laughs> stupid fault. So the, the anthill pythons tend to be, I mean, the other anteresia, the children's the spotted seem to be very plentiful in the hobby. Um, the anthill pythons, maybe for good reason, maybe for getting the baby started and breeding and everything like that, haven't necessarily have the amount of people breeding them and the quantity in the hobby. So, I mean, do you think that that's a great project to get into? I mean, that's something you may need to pour a lot of time into, but do you find that it's something cool that, you know, maybe a little bit more unique to you? I think it'll be cool. Um, I'm not really worried about if they're produced a whole lot. Uh, I make a lot of the decisions on what animals I want to work with based off what I just think is cool. Um, selling happens later and, you know, hopefully I'll make a little money on it at some point, at least to be able to pay for food and other things, but their food, not mine. Oh. I rely. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're probably not prevalent because they don't have many eggs. And when they do hatch, I mean, it's tough to get them going from, everything I hear. And it's a challenge that I think is cool. You know, breeding carpet pythons is cool. I love them. Um, but it, especially coastals, it, it's, I mean, there's a pretty good recipe to follow. There's many recipes that work. They work well. I don't have very much trouble getting them started. And a lot of people, I guess, are into that, but I want some more challenges. Um, I want something that might take me, that might be a little difficult. Jeez. And then I might need to get, you know, some anoles and scent some things or just feed them frozen thawed anoles. I, I don't know, but I want something that's a little more difficult to work with. So do I like you... that challenge. Jesus. She just dropped a mouse and a bottle of wine. We're getting back. All right. So, so are you someone who, I mean, some people just breed because you get into this, and me included with corn snakes, obviously, I can breed pretty much 100% of corn snakes all the time. But are you someone who is always looking kind of for a new challenge to take on, whether it be just keeping the animals and breeding the animals? Not always. Um, I, I do have limited time. You know, I, I have a lot of responsibilities here that I need to make sure that I, um, you know, stay on top of so that, you know, I don't get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but they deserve it. They definitely do. And I don't want if, – if keeping snakes in the basement ever – disrupts that part of my life then changes will have to be made um, because they're always going to be number one forever um, but challenges are what makes it fun so I you know if I'm going to have a smaller collection you know sometimes I don't see the fun in something that's nice and easy every year uh, unless it's going to be just really cool looking shit you know um, like last year I didn't, I didn't need to breed coastal carpets this year but I'd never MI'd um, it was a repeat pairing so um, maternally incubated, <laughs> maternal brooding, whatever you want to call it. So, um, I basically, so I'll, I put them together. I was like, I'll breed them and, I, and I'll let the female take care of them at all costs. Um, if she, she bailed on them, I wasn't going to put them in the incubator. Oh, um, okay. and I just let them ride and she did bail <laughs> at day 43. Um, fuck these eggs. 
and I just left them in there. I'm like, ah, we'll just see what happens. And, you know, nine out of the 14 still hatched, um, even though she wasn't, even though the temperatures were plummet, plummeting for them. I mean, I mean, uh, 80 to, sometimes they were 78, sometimes they were 82. But once she left them, they were never above 83. Um, and the, and uh, probably the five that didn't hatch were dried up full term in the egg. And I, I just don't think I kept the humidity high enough. But, you know, that's something else to push and try is, you know, maybe incubate eggs at a different temperature. Where, um, you know, everyone always, I think 88 is like, or 87.5 is like what everyone uses for a lot of carpet python stuff. And, you know, maybe the next batch of eggs I get, I'll either let them MI again, let a new one MI, not that one, um, since she's a quitter. Uh, but, you know. Or try incubating a lower temperature. I think that's fun. Like a lot of people are afraid to lose a clutch, and you know I'm not that afraid to lose a clutch necessarily. Um, but I think it's fun to play around with that stuff. I mean, what if I incubated at 84 degrees and it took 74 days and they hatched out? Like that's pretty cool. Do we know that that can even happen? Or I don't know. I just feel like that in Australia it doesn't stay 88 degrees on the dot for a you know, 60 days or whatever. So they have to be hardier. And I think that the MI clutch that I have last year kind of proved that they're a little hardier than I thought. Yeah, I think that's interesting because obviously we're to the point with colubrid eggs, which, I mean, shit, I just put them in the room and whatever happens. Um, I've, had, I've had them take 100 <laughs> days. I've had them take, you know, 53 days. And it's somewhere in between there that they'll come out. But I wonder, I see more and more people going to the, like, no worries about the incubation with things like carpets. Things like longer incubate, things like 84 for 70 days or whatever. Um, yeah, who knows? And then hit the breeding questions. Um, so someone asked on the chat, like, how do you go about breeding your carpets? And do you do combat at all? Nope. Um, I haven't had to. Uh, so basically, I've kind of got it on a system. Uh, I feed uh, for July... For the last half of July, August, and, and part of September, uh, I feed my females pretty much every week. Not huge meals, but every week. I like to bulk them up. And then uh, October, they fast for the entire month, make sure they kind of clean out their system. Okay. And then November 1st, I, I let room temperatures drop to whatever they go to. Um, I, set the, I set the heater at 65 um, so that it doesn't get below that. Um, but day one that I let the temperatures drop, I put the coastals together. And oh, wow. They okay. Yeah, last year it was November 1st. I put, I dropped temperatures. November 2nd, I put them together, and I got a lock immediately. Dang. It was pretty, and it's pretty consistent two years in a row. And, you know, I have a, a homozygous exanthic and a and a possible het exanthic, which really looks like het exanthic. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm going to let them go this year and see if I can prove her out and, I've never hatched out a homozygous exampic, so I'd like to see one. I've heard it's pretty easy to tell, but the coastals are kind of on a rhythm, and I just let it go. But um, I think there's probably, like, plenty of ways to be able to breed coastals. I don't think you have to do what I did. Um. So, also, the ones you were just talking about, you said 9 of the 14 hatch. Did the ones that hatch seem healthier? Um, the guy was saying a lot of people seem to be saying this recently that longer periods of incubation for hardier babies, like, or at did, least larger. Yeah, were they yeah. bigger? Do they? You know. No, I mean I take weights on everything. 
um, every baby that I hatch out, at least initial weights, I don't necessarily keep up with it, but um, they're roughly the same weights as, as the siblings from last year. That's interesting. Um, but that could have been because, you know, she bailed on them <laughs> at the very, you know, at day 43. So they could have had some developmental issues. They were developing fast and then developed slow. But anecdotally from people I've talked to, I have heard them a lot of carpet pythons at least hatch out bigger, stronger from lower and longer incubations. I feel like we've had that with corn sinks too. The longer they're in those eggs, the bigger they seem to pop out. Or I've also had really bad 100-day clutches. I mean, that one that we had had all type of a couple kinks and stuff because there was a there was a temperature spike kind of at the end which totally messed it up which i mean did you see those stillborns that were in the egg did you see things like kinks or things like different patterns and stuff like that no they all looked very similar to the rest of the clutch mates um i think there's a graphic picture somewhere on my facebook business page of Trying to that way, I put that up there to remind folks, it's not, you know, that there's some shitty parts of what we do. You know, breeding snakes isn't always like, look at this perfect, beautiful, exactly what I was hoping for mutation and pattern. Like sometimes they just die, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I probably could have done something about it this time, but it was all kind of a uh, more or less an experiment to see what happened with that clutch. But no, they all look pretty similar to each other in there. Yeah, that's. I mean, someone has to be, you know, doing stuff like that just to, um, I guess people are so worried about producing as many babies as possible. And uh, Dan in the chat asked if the Cape Yorks were the ones that, oh, yeah, you had mentioned that they were the ones that you were selling, correct? Was. Yeah, now you're not. No, no, no. I'm keeping, they, with, since um, I'll be releasing the Mac lots, they're staying. So, do you know how that goes back to Cape York? Do you know uh, what the origin story of that line is? No idea. I have read and heard that the spot, a lot of the spotted pythons that are in Cape York don't necessarily even look like what we call Cape York types, but I don't really have a lot of information on the background of those guys. I just know in the American hobby here um, that they're known as Cape York types. I think they're a really cool-looking type of uh, spotted python. Um, they're not terribly common um you know but they're not flooded or they're not super rare i just like the pattern and i like and i want to produce some and were those individuals striped um not not really not like ryan young's ryan young's got some really killer looking striped spotted pythons that have a cape york look to them at least the type look mm-hmm. at least i think is there anyone really uh, going hard on as far as lineage and stuff on those guys? I think it's tough, but I, I don't really know. Again, I mean, I hate to give you a bunch of I don't know no, answers. No, that's fine. I don't know, I'm not going to pretend, but uh, I don't really know. I'm sure um, if Mutton's producing anything. Do you have like a bell that you ring when someone says Mutton? If you say it three times, maybe. Uh, we, Is it I, a peer? It's usually me acknowledging it we've actually we've gone multiple shows without his name coming up like true. in for a while it was like 10 shows straight his name you know just hey, gonna happen sorry i broke it uh, uh. <laughs> it's okay i usually call him the godfather because that's what it just <laughs> felt like everyone's like oh mutton, mutton has this good one and oh he's my my friend nick mutton you know i just call him up everyone's his fucking friend well that's where we had a string of purest 
Moralia people on. So, I mean, yeah. come on. That's what you're going to get. <laughs> but, but Some as, other people I think that I've talked to a lot about Antaresia are Andy Grossman. I think he has got a lot of cool stuff with Antaresia. And uh, I talked to a buddy of mine, Chris Belemi, who just, uh, I pester him all the time about like, hey, how's it going raising your Simpsons? Like he hatched out some Simpsons pythons and you know, I, I bug him all the time because I'm trying to get some info on in case I produce something. Now, what's he doing? He's like, same as last time, man. Leave me alone. <laughs> so are you in a kind of friendish way? <laughs> are you trying to add any pythons to your collection right now? Or are you just kind of trying to get to a spot where you can maintain where you're at? No, I'm done adding. Uh, I say that, but you know, as far as I can tell, I'm done adding. Um, I've reached, I, I've put together a collection plan that I'm happy with. Um, and I just got to sell some Maclots pythons and, um, I'm not in a rush, but yeah, that sucks. I mean, sometimes you sell stuff be for reasons that aren't because you don't like them. Um, but I think I'm set in the next few years, you know, and the next, I've got two more individual animals that I need to acquire to complete a pair. I need a female Sanzinia, uh, but I have that in the works, which is Madagascan tree boa. And then next year, hopefully I'll be in the market for a rough scale python male. Oh, I see where you're going. It seems like everyone's in the Sanzinia these days. Uh, which phase are you interested in? Uh, I have a Mandarin phase male. I like him. He's pretty cool. I think I Just saw, um, what's the other phase? What do they call the other phase? Green. Yeah, because I saw one at the Philly Zoo, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Like, yeah, why cool. is that there? <laughs> but <laughs> I thought I thought the Mandarin was the more common. Um, it is okay phase of them, but I mean, super super cool snakes. Or so those more like, do you keep one now? You're just trying to complete a pair. Yeah, I have one now. I have a male. Everyone's getting I really excited about Scanzinia in the chat. They really like them. <laughs> May I tell you what? In person, they just—they're—they're they're so different. I mean, they are—I mean, they're just smooth, like just as they move and just as they feel. I mean, they are smooth snake. They are the direct opposite of a rough scale python. It's very weird because I see more and more python people. That may be their introduction to uh, to boas. Do they act very much like? There's so many Moralia people in them at this point. Um, do they kind of fit in that mold somewhat as far as keeping goes? Uh, I mean, they're pretty hardy. Um, I haven't had any. I've been keeping the one I have uh, exactly like I keep my carpets, uh, except I give him a little more climbing opportunity. He's got a perch in there, and um, I give him a if, – if I keep an animal in a cage, I usually provide a humid hide box as well just so it has an option if it wants to. But, um, yeah, everything's kind of kept at roughly the same temperatures in my snake room, so – it's been a pretty bulletproof animal. And do they perch more green tree and perfect coils or like Amazons? They kind of go up into a corner. And then also, oh, what no. are those temperatures that you're keeping them at? Um, I don't think they really perch much at all. If, if I think a lot of times if you see one perch, it's probably because someone put it there. I think they're just <laughs> as, I think they're just as happy on the ground or underneath something as I mean. And this is you know I've worked with Sanzinia and Zeus before, and they were the same type of way. Um, uh, but my temperatures, my, my snake room never, it, it fluctuates right now between 77 and 79 throughout most of the year. And, uh, most animals have hot spots between 84 and 85 ish, right around there. Not, not something terribly crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I keep my Morelli. Even though people, you know, back in the day, everything was 88 to 90. If it was called a python or a boa, that thing needs to be 88 or 90 degrees or something like that. Oh, yeah. Everything needed to have a hot spot of 90, for sure. Yeah, which, I mean, I think, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's obviously a cold-blooded animal. We used to feed them more. Um, I feel like, this is probably really stupid, but, like, they have a battery think about a battery and the higher they are heat wise that battery drains quicker and i feel like your snakes kind of especially you see that with diamond pythons right when we cut them hot for so long they had a lifespan of like five to eight years in comparison to now animals are living 15 so that's just a random thing i don't know if you totally disagree with that i mean it's draining it's draining physiologically i would imagine i mean it's it's a lot i mean the number of obese snakes i see photos of including ones i used to have or still even have are pretty high it's a pretty high number and because we don't really understand it and a lot of people like when you think about feeding a snake usually most people think about it like well is it was it once a week once every other week you know something like that once a month depending on how big it is but i try to think of things on an annual basis you know it has and, to and be I'm, yeah it used to be it had to be this formula you do it every week or you know, but it doesn't seem that way. I don't know if you prescribe to something like seasonal feeding or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. In my adult, in my breeders, especially, um, I think that young animals are a little more, um, they, they acclimate easier to more feeding, but they're putting so much of that fuel that they're, they're eating and consuming into growth. Um, that I think you can feed them a little more often. Plus, I mean, they just, they need to eat a little more often, but adults, I mean, there's no real reason to, feed them at any carpet python i'm aware of once a week my male i plant my adult male breeder coastal i i plan on eight to ten meals for him a year um and that's with three or four months of fasting and are those large meals when you give them to them or small meals? not not necessarily i usually don't offer anything bigger than a smaller medium rat or several small meals i feed a variety of stuff um feed a lot of chicken chicks and, and quail and um just whatever I can find, whatever is, I try to offer a variety. And do you feel that that's necessary or do you just like to do that maybe? Necessary? I don't know. I I would imagine, I mean, it's hard to argue because, you know, they've been kept very well for a long time and on mainly rodent diets and you don't see too much, but I mean, I think it's fun to vary it. You know, most, a lot of my animals eat mostly birds. Uh, mostly chicken, mostly quail, and then I supplement with um, rodents and occasional reptilinks and, and things like that. Um, is it necessary? I don't know. Do I like doing it? Yeah, I'd rather see it. I mean, I'd rather them eat a variety of things. I think it's weird because obviously we can survive on eating like Lucky Charms every day. And we would do just fine, but it's hard to tell for a snake what is healthy, what's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's still under evaluation, not just in the private hobby, but in zoos as well. Is like, what's a healthy snake look like? And it's, it's on a species by species basis most times. Um, you know, once, in my view, I, I think of it this way once a snake is fat and you know it, it's really hard to make it not fat. <laughs> but if you are a little more cautious and you end up having a, an animal that's a little too lean, it's a lot easier to put weight on that animal. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have that problem. You know, I think, you know, long term, I think it's healthier. 
that's something that I have definitely, um, you have that corn snake that feeds well. And I have accidentally made snakes fat, and it's really hard to get their body back to right where I want it to, especially in corn snakes, it seems. Even though metabolism is supposed to be fast, and you would think they would lose weight, they are, like, built to maintain their fatness. Keep it on. Yeah. Well, they get that junk in the trunk, you know? I've seen a lot of <laughs> those hips, yeah. That, that little, those little fat saddles around the cloaca, like, I don't think those go away. No, it's very hard. I don't think I've seen one go away completely. It's, uh, it's just, it's way easier to add weight just in general so and they're very prone to things like fatty deposits for some reason and i've had that happen and it doesn't go away <laughs> and it sucks no. but um so i guess switching on to that uh what colubras do you have because i know said it's Okatees? it's no, technically pronounced call you bread but it's hard for me to do no only owen owen was right owen was right that way but did you majority, check his sources? Majority, Wayne, Wayne Booth, Dr. Wayne Booth said that majority, Latin... Uh, uh, majority rules. It's hard for my mouth to say it that he way, but that's how you say it. the only one who says, call, I literally can't even call say you, it. Call you, Brid. Call you, Brid. But that's how I think they're both accepted, and I acknowledge both. I say colubrid because a long time ago I realized that a lot of times with Latin names, the faster you can say it usually ends up being the right way. <laughs> um, like, uh, I used to always say crotalus. For rattlesnakes, and then most Protolus. people, you talk about like you know, and you're like, oh, well, why'd you say that so damn fast? It sounds cooler to say crotalus, but it's, I mean, I think their correct pronunciation is crotalus. And once you go through a lot of those kind of uh, names, you start realizing that a lot of them are just said kind of fast and <laughs> seems to always be the right way. And it's a dead language that no one speaks, so who really cares? True that. But the dead language, no one can tell me how to say it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's colubrid. <laughs> so corn snakes and colubrids in general, yeah. or colubrids, um, what are you working with? Obviously, you said okatees, but uh, do you have anything else kicking around? Yeah, I have some uh, Hart County, Kentucky corns um, that are really, really cool. I don't even know what that uh, is. There's a very, it's just a county in Kentucky. <laughs> it's not a mutation. It's just, um, I think it's pretty... Uh, I have it for more sentimental reasons. You know, I, I grew up in Kentucky, and I and they have a very small population in Kentucky. So it's pretty cool to have a, an animal that's derived from that area. Um, the What's Okatees the overall are, look of that animal from Kentucky? Um, I mean, I think it's a really attractive specimen, but um, I mean, compare it when it's right next to an Okatee, it's tough. <laughs> but I think they're really cool. They have a very, like, grayish base pattern throughout their entire body, and... Um, there's some real subtle oranges that kind of grew up through it. And I think I have some photos on, on my uh, Facebook page or whatnot, but I Googled uh, it. They're like rusty in the best <laughs> sense. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's a wild type pattern. It's a normal pattern corn snake with some, it's a very dark, it's not very bright. Um, but I just think it's a very cool snake. I, I like them a lot. It's something, uh -huh. I mean, there's something obviously we like. Uh, I like having black rat snakes because that's when I was growing up in upstate New York, that's one of the only snakes we have. So especially large snake. I mean, when you see a six foot black rat snake, and usually up there, they're like completely black. And uh, that's something that you can't. It's just some sentimental thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, it's, it's usually besides garter snakes, if you grew up anywhere in like the Midwestern, well, Ohio is considered Midwest, but I mean, really, I, I don't really think it is. But 
Um, where I grew up, I mean, it was either rat snakes or garter snakes typically is what I would find. And uh, you get tired of garter snakes all the time. Well, not that they're not cool, but um, you see there's definitely a lot more of them. And occasionally you come across a, a you know, a black rat and you're just like, dang, that is a, that is a boss snake, man. <laughs> you know, when you used to, when you used to garter snakes. So um, I think they're awesome animals and I definitely will keep the ones that I have. Absolutely. So I was. Are you saying you want to email? You want to expand our black rat collection in the future as well? I saying? want white sided. I want obviously the licorice is the white sided. I want the amel white sided. I want. I would like to have all the variations of rat snakes. I would like to have white sided yellow rat snakes. Um, I just like to have all the rat snakes. I think. I don't know where you fall on that. I mean. Are you contempt with your your amels, your blue eyed, and then your amel female? I am. I everything that I've got currently, species wise, is what and mutation wise is what I plan on keeping. So there's a lot of room for other people to get into those and, and move on and kind of move those projects, keep moving them forward. Um, but I, I'm good with what I have now. I do really like the white sided. So. They are the white sided. But why is it white sided? The adult white sided is. They're good looking. Still be called a black rat. Well, it's eastern rat snake, right? It just feels dumb to call it a a white-sided black rat. What's an eastern rat snake? What's a western rat snake? What's a Texas rat snake anymore? I don't know. Everyone wants to change. Got to read some paper. I I did. I read some papers on it, and they're all the same, apparently. Just because something seems, just because something is legitimate. And uh, seems, and it's probably the right way to go. Doesn't mean you have to like it. You know what <laughs> that I mean? is very apparent in Moralia as well as. <laughs> but I mean, the same thing happened with American herbs. I mean, Latin names have changed a lot over the last fifteen years or so. Um, you know, toads are not bufo in America. I mean, or, or in North America, they're Anasiris. You know, Eumeces used to be the genus of skinks and now it's plestiodon or you know a lot of things have changed lithobates not rana for bullfrogs and stuff i mean a lot of things change and i pretty much go with whatever ssar which is the society for the study of amphibians and reptiles whatever they acknowledge i usually just go with that they got a lot of smarter people than me who are all in agreement so i just go with them i go with bullshit hobby science <laughs> i'm like chondro and <laughs> oh i love chondro yeah i don't yeah and then yeah. if you call a Slowinski's corn, if you call oh, a Slowinski's rat James snake Lewis. or corn snake, don't if you call it a, if you call it a Kisachi or whatever, just mm. go fuck yourself. That Those are like fight James words. Lewis. You and James go back and forth on them. He says he's from. There's just weird little lines I believe that. that we all draw, and I'm not sure why. Yeah, well, we are. We're just humans who have opinions based on the experiences we've had in our life. So your experiences are different different than mine and different than someone else's and just go with what you know and ultimately i mean we are just trying to put names to things just because humans like to categorize things and put things in nice little tidy corners and this is this and this is that but turns out that nature especially with something like the slinsey's corn snake where it was thought to be an emery rat that bred with a corn snake and that was just an integrated area but then all of a sudden, like 1997 or something, they're broken up to their own uh, species. 
I mean, that's just us trying to. But nature doesn't follow our rules, our names, and stuff like that. So, I mean, the gray area, I feel like, is always going to be there and up for interpretation. Yeah, and I think we're all we're also. It's it's hard to imagine that we're in the middle of speciation and you know natural selection as it's happening right now. So, I mean, we're it's just a tiny little moment of time of you know the bigger picture. You know, so a lot of time we may be seeing the beginnings of many new species that won't be brand new species for another several hundred years or longer. So I don't know, but there are way smarter people than me who get paid to research this and use actual data, actual information um, to make these calls. And then a lot of other people who are very similar to those people review those, that data. And then they, they also agree or not agree depending on what it is. And um, so I, Again, that's kind of what I go with is like those people is who am I? I'm just a zookeeper. Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm not I'm not anyone you should listen to. I just have stupid opinions formed <laughs> around, you know, this hobby that doesn't really matter. But <laughs> but as far as you said, something that is uh, seemingly interested, especially rough scale pythons. I mean, that seems like something that is somewhere between. I mean, I don't know where it gets killed scales and a green tree python and something red. I mean, what I don't know what the hell it is. But uh, what got you interested in rough scale pythons and um, kind of when do you plan acquiring them? I mean, I think it's for like a lot of people, rough scale pythons. You remember that Marco Shea, um, you know, program from a long time ago or found some and they're you know that they're rare and the idea that they're even available now and that they're bred like i mean you can buy one in australia for like a can of beer like they seem to be like everywhere um and it's just amazing <laughs> to actually have that specimen so you know i definitely want to get a male and breed them in the future but i'm just stoked to have one you know i'm i'm just stoked to be able to get that thing out and just feel a python with keeled scales so look at that those blue eyes and you know it's just a, an outstanding specimen to, to have in hand. And a lot of times that's what drives my decisions to get animals too. Once I have it in hand, I'm like, well, well, shit, this is way cooler than even the photo. So, you know, and maybe it's a little nostalgic is, I, you know, I'm holding the, that rough scale python thinking of to, you know, 16 to 18 year old me watching that Mark, Mark O'Shea program and that I can't believe I have one right here in my hand. Um, but they're just an incredibly attentive animal. Um. Yeah, mine needs to move up a cage size, and so I can watch it a little more. So it's in a tub now. You do have a female. I do. Yeah, I got a female from Dave D, a vibrant beardist. Um. Yeah, I thought I'd give him a shout out because he was a really easy person to do business with. What's uh, his name? David. Dave D. E. And I don't think he even needs, as far as between rough scales, and then I don't know if he's still working with green trees, but the green tree collection, he at least used to yeah, have. Yeah, he's got a knockout. Wow. Just ridiculous. I just write down any names to as possible people to have on the podcast. Man, you can tell that, you know, I'm outside. I, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting darker and darker. I've been wanting to ask you, like, are there no mosquitoes in Cincinnati? Because we would have gotten eaten alive sitting out here in Pennsylvania for that long. You know, I'm one of those people who, for some reason, I don't tend to get bit by mosquitoes much. But God damn, you I, suck. I know, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but tonight, I mean, there don't seem to be many out. Oh, there were. I came out here just to 
look around. I'm sure as it gets darker, those little assassins will find their way around to me. <laughs> I said I don't get bit much. I still get bit. So, um, but, you know, I wanted to give the family the indoor area so they could feel free to do what they wanted to do. And we that could say reasonable. that. <laughs> now, do but, you, speaking of which, do you get out and do you field herb at all? Besides yeah, catching Mississippi gonna... map turtles? <laughs> Even when I'm not paid to, I like to go out. You know, I've got um, a, a really good friend of mine and, and a coworker. Um, I go with him on occasion. Uh, he's got spots. He's been in the area for a long time. So he's got some really cool spots here and there. And I like to go with him, whether it's two or three hours away. I don't go field herping as much as I'd like to. Um, and, you know, I think that everyone probably feels that same way. Um and I don't see it increasing in the future either, you know. So I do, I get out there as much as I can. Yeah, it's you know, something. A lot of possibilities. I mean, it's kind of like deep sea fishing. It's not really that fruitful. It's not like you can go out for twenty minutes, find a snake, and like be happy. Like especially if you it's want honestly, to. Honestly, most of the time, just being out there. Right. You know, you're out in a in a newer area, or you know, you're probably not by a lot of civilization at least. So you're in a either a forested area or you know, an, an old limestone mill or whatever you're at. And it's just fun to be out there. It's, and if you find something, that's cool. So what would be your favorite things in the area to find? It's always fun finding ringneck snakes, honestly. Um, you know, last year I went herping and, and we found a, a good chunk of timber rattlesnakes a little further south. Um, and those were really cool to find. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm never necessarily looking for something I'm, I'm just looking for anything i'm lame i'm just like oh, everything's cool man look at this caught a cave salamander oh look at this i caught an american toad like that's fine no he does like that it. too he's like you can't be picky when you're so you know picking when you're turning logs or turning rocks i mean when you see something you see something and in Texas, like finding a tarantula, I don't like tarantulas, but like, fuck, I found it's something. Cool. Or a scorpion, I like, I found it. I want to go someplace, it. this is totally not podcast related, but I want to go someplace herping where like no one else is around. Because you like to go to places where like people are walking on a trail. It's only so because I'm we... standing there awkward watching you trying to turn over a log and like making awkward faces at people turning like walking by us she like, thinks i look like some type of psycho but i mean we always does and it's a very awkward maybe. situation for me just staying like uh, but that's the thing like we usually what i said just be a psycho with him <laughs> i just want to go cares some... about those i want to go some like isn't there herping where no one's around very isn't urban urban herping which is like in the city of dallas going looking for copperheads or... we need to go more rural rural well then we gotta drive further that's far i'll that's do far. that if that means there's no people around to give us weird looks i mean but see that's that's where you got to connect with that herp society find those people who have been in the area for you know 25 years in the herp society and they know the spots yeah yeah you know what i mean nowhere to go it's Man, something you can make a, a full day out of. Give me enough alcohol, I'll be fine. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> usually a bad recipe, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, different subject. You were talking about family earlier. so And I know you said your wife works at the zoo, but is she interested in what you keep at home? Does she help out a lot? Does your daughter help at all, since you have corns and stuff like that? Uh, No. 
<laughs> Short answer. He tolerates it. Um, he tolerates it. Oh, same boat. So okay. She's supportive, but toler and tolerates it. You know, we've we've got our own hobby, so I just do what I do, and she just basically puts up with it. In your daughter's interest, she she likes it, you know. But you know, it's a tiny little room, so and things bite and. She's got a lot of other things on her plate already, so I kind of and sometimes it's like my respite. You know, it's my my that's my man cave is going down to my forty eight square feet of snake heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as far as I don't think I asked you directly, the numbers that you keep now in your collection. Total number? It's not many. Um, including offspring or just breeders? Just breeders. Just breeders and future breeders. Um, I think I'm right around 26 or 30 or something in there. Okay, so that's super manageable. And how many how many clutches did you have this year, and how many clutches do you plan to have? Um, I don't ever want to have more than five clutches in a year. I had... Uh, three clutches this year. The rat snakes double clutched, um, and that's something I think about too. And I think it's fun because I don't want to overwhelm, you know, myself or, you know, flood the hobby with anything and just breed to breed. I want to put some serious thought into it. So um, I usually try to think about the number of babies that I can think I can handle, and then I take off like fifteen, like a clutch, because I think I probably overshoot it. So. If five seems to be the number, especially if I'm going to breed Anteresia, like the Prothensis, I mean, I'm only looking at, you know, if I'm lucky, you know, one to five eggs or so. Um, and they're going to, but those one to five offspring could be a lot tougher to raise than, you know. That might rats. be 60% of your time. Hey, buddy. Oh, your dog's there. <laughs> she wants Being to go out. Hi, little girl. Dogs. So I haven't. My black rats are far away from breeding. Um, what's the normal clutch size on them? Um, I typically get 14. And the double clutch, the second clutch, I got eight with seven fertile. But last year she laid 14. This year she laid 14. Um, I had some white sided a few years ago that I released, that I, that I let go of once I got this new pair. And um, they produced 12. So... I would say you're probably looking at 12 to 15. I'm sure they can lay more. You know, my female's not entirely huge, uh, but she's a 2009 animal, and she's not going to get a whole lot bigger. Yeah, so that's plenty, plenty of years to get an adult size on her. And yeah. So yeah, I may need to go inside soon and turn on a light. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, you're, you're white, you're... but you're getting pretty dark. <laughs> you can only see the whites of your eyes. That was creepy. Sorry. <laughs> um, all right. I'm going to move, but I can still talk while moving, I think. Yeah. Okay. That was my old man grunt. Yeah. Whenever you move, get out of chairs, go down in chairs, you make noises. Yep. All the time. In either my mouth or my knees. <laughs> so, now your your average Morelia clutch must be a little bit more than uh, than those black rats, right? Um, no, honestly, <laughs> really. So you keep you must keep your females relatively small. Yeah, I mean they don't get very big. Um, sorry, I know it's still dark in here. <laughs> it's okay. 
There, there you wait. go. There we go. I'll just stand up. That's oh, fine. no. Oh, that's you're fine. Um, so I think, uh, well, I had a big tiger female and she laid 26 eggs, but typically all my other clutches have been actually have all been 14 eggs. That's pretty so, high. Yeah. They, uh, I guess that's the magic number. But if you get uh, 14 anthill pythons, that would be pretty impressive. That'd be really impressive. I think uh, I would feel bad for that anthill python before she O-positive. She'd be huge. She'd be throwing up eggs coming out both ends. <laughs> how how far along are you with them? Uh, I'm going to give them a shot this year. They're 2014 animals, um, which is crazy because the female's like less than 200 grams. The male is right around 100 grams, and they're, you know, they're adults. So that's pretty sweet. So I'm going to give them a run this year, the Cape Yorks and um, the uh, the homozygous exanthic to the possible heterozygous exanthic. So those are the three that I'm looking for next year. Is four years typical for an anthill python? No idea. <laughs> I wish I had that much. <laughs> no are, idea. I are just, you I trying think, uh, to spring breed them or winter breed them? I'm going to put them through the same paces as my uh, my coastals right now. Uh, and, and I'll make adjustments next year if needed. Um, you know, occasionally I just, you know, I palpate a lot of the females and I, and I try to feel for follicle development. It's very tough, I think, in an anteresia, especially yeah. the percentages. But I can almost always feel them in other species. Um, so as soon as I feel follicles building, you know, I'll start pairing them up a little bit it, if I feel like it, it could happen. Because uh, the coastals I just put together anyways, I think I was telling her earlier. but the anteresia, if I feel follicles in there, I'll put them together no matter what time of the year it is. Are you, because uh, I missed some of the breeding talk, are you a kind of cohabber for the winter? Or do you pair on and off, take the male out, put the male back in? I pair on and off, usually for about a week. But he was saying, like, right when he drops the temperatures, he starts clockwork. Day one or two, yeah. Let me see if I can. And he got, like, a lock up, like, almost after dropping the temperatures. Is that worse or better? You've gone blue, a little blue. All right. I just did not backlit by the sun, basically. <laughs> Either way is fine. It's fine. I just feel bad you're standing up. There. Oh, whatever. Yeah, it all works. And as far as the anthill python, I mean, where did you get that from? Get them from, and were they feeding on rodents right off the bat? Uh, I didn't get them as young animals. Uh, actually, uh, I, you don't see them available very often, to be honest with you. And uh, uh, I saw them, and I made an offer and and bought them um, from Marissa Casey. And they are uh, Don Meeker animals. Um, I don't know them that well. Is that and Meeker then, the same Meeker as like snoring gophers or something? Is a maybe. Of... Yeah, because that would be a really weird combination of snakes to keep. But... I know Meeker from that. There's a Meeker line of uh, some type of colubrid Taufus, I think. You're probably right, because I don't know that much. But uh, I, I don't know what else he produces. I checked his website, and I was like, oh, okay. He still produces But stuff. I think and, it may be like a very old school dude. Yes. I don't see him any. I don't, I, sometimes I see stuff from him on Kingsnake and Fauna, um, but never on Facebook. And then the uh, Cape Yorks came. <laughs> 
before it was a bad word, there was ISIS reptiles. So I think <laughs> changed their name recently, but that's where. That's where Uh, but I got them as pretty much adults, so I haven't raised any. That's cheating, I guess. But you know, I don't see them often, so I was gonna get them no matter what. If it, if it takes four years for them to acclimate and finally produce, that's fine by me too. I feel like those are one of those things that you scoop up no matter what. And I mean, you see it all the time with things like scrub pythons or things like you have like Max and stuff like that. I mean. People get into them, they get out of them. There's only a few people who keep them long term, and I mean, if you really want to get them, you scoop them when you can. The, this was a spe- This is probably the only species, the Prothensis, that I told myself if I saw a decent pair for sale, I was gonna get them. Like, and I just did, and that was a while. That was a, over a year ago, but um, I haven't regretted it. You know, the Prothensis are awesome. I mean, it's it's just mind blowing that they're so small. Are you know, they male weighs the same weight as four hatchling coastal carpets? It's crazy. And do they? Do you keep them in like twenty-eight quart tubs as adults, or what are you keeping them in? I think I'm going to move them up to twenty-eights. Right now they're in sixteen quart bins. Yeah, and they seem happy as they have room. But I'll give them the other. I'm going to move them up to twenty-eight quart soon. Ooh, that's fun. She's, she's she talks making noises because I stopped scratching her, and so that's her little. Oh, I just thought you were really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the dog. Her angry noises. She's a intense growler. Are you going to talk to the mics or what? I can hear her. Thank all you. Right, all right, She's a loud talker. <laughs> so as far as the, the anthills go, are th- is there any particular, I mean, obviously they're red, but is there any better line than anything else? Or do you Man, know that's of anything? another i don't know for you yeah no, there are, um, you know a lot of times with the collection plan i made myself i was staying for the most part away from mutations um long term i think i'd always be happier to have a, a wild type looking animal not to say that there aren't some awesome mutations i have no problem with mutations but i just wanted prothensis now at some point it might be nice to get another pair of prothensis so i can have different lines and you know as genetically different as possible i think that would be cooler to have and i mean that's one of the reasons i'd like to have more of those so i can produce some every other year but have different lines available or different offspring less related because they all have to be related at some point do you know if they're i mean does producing take a lot out of the females that you definitely want to give them a year off uh from my watching them with their appetite i would say they could probably breed every year without a without any problems um but you know i don't plan on it at most i like if i breed something i'll breed it two years in a row then give it at least a year off but i plan on trying to maternally incubate as many clutches as possible with pythons so if they don't recover i'll make that decision in august probably every year if 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 i'm gonna pair them up so you would do your first year of breeding them you would let them maternally incubate the pretensis maybe i don't know that's a tough one (laughs) But everything else I have, I think I would. I'd have an incubator waiting for those, though, in case. Yeah. Just in, um, unlike the last clutch that I am, I'd if it, I was just going to let it ride no matter what. But well, I think that that is something that is bred to a certain point to where, like, I feel like it's reasonable for you to have a little bit more worry if 
to have those snakes in the hobby is more important than a coastal carpet or some coastal whatever whatever but yeah i just done it and uh, i think they're cool and i want to hold a one or two gram baby you know (laughs) it's just is that how small they come out uh from what i've read two or three grams is normal and i wouldn't doubt that something variation so that's that's for perspective i mean that is smaller than a corn snake yeah that's crazy (laughs) yeah they're small i mean their adults are smaller than corn snakes that's true I mean, I've seen adults, yeah, are much, much smaller. I mean, what do you yeah. think? Because um, I saw this 16-quart deli cup. I remember I was at the Rochester show, and I was trying to make a purchase between an anthill python and a water python. Clearly, I took a water python. I'm not sure why. But, uh, Nothing wrong with that. The, there was this adult, there was a proven breeder in a 16-quart deli cup, which pretty much... The proven breeder could almost fit in the palm of your hand. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Wait, you bought a water python at a Rochester show? Uh, Rexpo, yeah. There was wow. A, there was an you're, anthill python breeder and a water python breeder. You're never going to see that. Like, what do I, don't you, know I know, yeah. It's very, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know anyone who buys a water that show python is cool at a show. Because like, they, that's insane. There's a guy in Rochester who's been breeding one pair of water pythons for like the last 15 years. So. <laughs> He's on a... One of those like old school guys, and he was the same as the anthill guy or different guy. No, different guy. They're just like random old school guys up there. That's super surprising. Okay, but it's cool. That's cool. I don't think I've ever seen uh, the pygmies or the anthills at a show. I don't think I, unless I missed them, I didn't see them at Tinley the last couple years either. So I mean, and that I've seen a lot of shit at Tinley. Yeah, and this guy was selling like breeding pairs for five hundred or something, which seems super cheap. Yeah, that is because he could have found Jesus Christ. Um, she couldn't find. He couldn't find. You know, he's probably not an online guy. He's at a show, and like no one gives a shit about anthill pythons at a show for some reason. Um, you take them out, they probably try to eat your finger, and uh, yeah, I guess he had no other outlet for them. But yeah, who knows? The thing is, like, they don't take up a lot of room to keep for a little while longer. But right, really, they don't. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine not having that species. I, I've enjoyed having them since I came in. I mean, they're, they're eight right away. They're, I don't know, they just got better. They got cool little personalities. Usually it's mean, but <laughs> still a cool personality trait. Yeah, and it's weird that they've been around. I mean, they have to have been around for a quite a while as far as captive breeding goes because it's not like we're shipping in more so you would think uh, after you know a certain series of generations of captive breeding and getting them started they'd be easier to start and they would maybe you know have a little bit less of an attitude but it doesn't seem that way no and i just you know i think a lot of people are just thrown off by it you know there are a lot of people who want like a big macho python and uh anthills just aren't those and i there's no mutations and they're not outwardly like bright and gorgeous. So a lot of people, I just don't even think get into them. And I think that's part of the reason they're rare. Um, but man, I, I think they're, they adhere to, or they, they appeal to a lot of people who are really into it and like the species themselves. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I can't say enough about them. I'll just ramble and ramble. I think, I think if people were more reasonable with their capacity to keep animals, maybe Antaresia in general would be 
a little bit more of a popular keep in comparison. You know, so many people are willing to go get a retick or something. Like, I think for some reason in a lot of people's minds, like price compares to size. They're like, I'm not. I don't want this four hundred dollar little little thing. Right. They're it's thinking, not worth if I'm going to drop all this money, it better be some big Mondo stuff. And I don't. I don't know why our brains work that way, but I think. I think that's just how our brains work. Like, the bigger the snake, the more the money they're willing to drop. Big snakes appeal to certain people, that's for sure. But um, Yeah. It's hard to convince yourself. I don't know. For some reason, it's hard to convince yourself to drop a lot of money on something that's so little. I don't know why, but it is. Yeah, I mean, it depends. If you get a well-started Antaresia, you're not going to have a problem. Once they're started, I mean, these things will just eat forever i mean i don't they've never refused a meal for me you know and talking with people who have read them like once they once they're consistently taking food like they'll never ever i've never heard of one stopping and having an issue i never got the fact that an animal was like that the fact that everyone says that they try to eat everything unless they're right out of the egg and then they don't want to eat anything. But once they get started, they'll eat anything. Like, I don't get it. Like, why their demeanor changes once they find out what a... What food is. What food is, yeah. Or what we want them to eat. You know, yeah. a lot of Antarisia come out want to eat... Li- I bet if you offered a gnolls and other lizard-scented stuff, you might not have as much of an issue. And I'm sure that's probably what they're supposed to be eating. Yeah, so, and, you know, when I say well-established, usually it refers to they're on rodents. But, I mean, at this point, it's 2018, you can get anything you want. You know, I, I have Langaha, leaf-nosed snakes, and I just have a freezer full of anoles. <laughs> and I got them eating frozen thawed anoles. And that was easy. It's not like this stuff's difficult to get. Yeah. You know, 30 years ago, I was like, man, I have to go get quail. Or I have to go get, you know, and you're just like, uh, all you have to do is click a few buttons. Absolutely. You have quail like a next week. It's not difficult. But something like the rat snakes, I don't know if you've seen this with corns, it's ridiculous. Like they want to eat and they don't know it. Like how I usually get all these things to start eating is, you know, they want to kill me. So I just hold a little tiny pinky until they strike a couple times and then it sticks to their mouth and I freeze and then they eat it. <laughs> well, I've been uh like all of them, every single one. I've been assist feeding uh, mouse tails to 18 of them. So uh, those, and I have just, there's just always a couple that have zero will to live. They just, they do <laughs> not want to eat anything. They will, I can literally almost to the point of force feeding, get it all the way down their mouth and they can regurgitate. Oh man. And it's like, what the fuck? There's nothing more frustrating than that. No, 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 no. So, oh. We gotta try the laundry detergent thing. Yeah, I mean, I've tried a lot of things. I do a null scenting, which usually works. This year, though, totally struck out on that for some reason. Boiled pinkies worked on a few of them. Um, last year, if I null scented something or if I gave a part of an null, automatic. Everything was going for it. This year, there's a whole clutch that whenever they see anything happen, they just run away immediately. And it doesn't matter what happens. They're just runners. We gotta try Jason Nelson's weird shit. Yeah, Jason Nelson, apparently, he does, he wipes them off, and he'll even rub them in dirt outside. And for some reason, that works. And I've never heard that before. Yeah, me either. I mean, whatever, you get to work. Like, there's so many ways to make something happen. 
you know, so many methods that seem to work. And yeah, we've tried all of them. I'm sure you've had clutches before. You've tried the most random of shit. I go, what happens if I put it in this tub with the king snake after, you know, three months or four months? I mean, there's just a certain point where it's like this. And it's hard because a lot of those ones are just really cool looking that I don't want to give up on. But I know a lot of people would just give it to the to the king snake or something like that. But I can't bring myself to do it yet this year. But it happens sometimes. Yeah, you know, and I think that moment changes on a yearly basis. You know, what is your cutoff? I had last season, 2017, I had a carpet python that hatched and went eight and a half months without eating. So it lived eight and a half months in at normal temperature. Without eating, yeah, it's, alive. it's still alive. It's the last one I have for sale for that <laughs> from that clutch, and then it just started eating. You know, one day I just got real mad, and um, I was like, "Come on, why won't you eat?" And I don't like to let anything go if I don't have to. Um, and I tease fed it, maybe a little rougher than I usually do, and I don't know what it was, but it bit it, wrapped, and I was like, "What? Freeze! Don't move!" And I just sat there about twenty-five minutes, barely moving, watching this thing finally take down a a hopper mouse or something. So yeah, you never know. Python's a little different. I don't think a corn snake's really going to make it eight and a half months. You know, I think you're, I think your three and a half months is probably equivalent to a carpet Python's eight and a half months. So yeah, I have a couple uh, going on never, two months and I mean, you could see some of them at the same time period. I can have some go two months look totally fine. Body structure wise. I can have some go two months look terrible. You can see their spine and everything. So I mean, it goes kind of individual with corn snakes, it seems. But yeah, it changes every year. You know, and sometimes... eighteen is just so many that we can't get to eat. I mean, you do what you can do, and that's part of the sad part of the um the sad part of breeding snakes. Like I was saying earlier, throwing the eggs of fully formed but dried out babies. You know, it's sometimes it sucks. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and but the good outweighs the bad. You know, there are so many positives and fun times in it. But you know, I think a lot of people don't really, especially newer people, don't understand how shitty it can be. Yeah, I think they I think, think you really know, actually see, like the animals. Yeah, you see all the pictures on Facebook when people hatch them out. But I mean, there's plenty of animals that don't make it, or plenty of animals that do look amazing when they hatch out that don't want to eat. Uh, sometimes your coolest looking animals don't want to eat, and just something we deal with and see that's part of the reason i don't want to have a huge collection or have that many babies if i do have a really kick-ass one i want to make sure i have time to devote to it and and get it going you know i'd rather have 30 awesome well-started babies than 60 and you know most of them are good but there's a couple of handfuls of you know problems and i don't know i just don't have time for it all yeah i mean i'm if i was this guy who produces a thousand corn snakes and wholesales most of them would I mess with these 18 to assist feed them? Fuck no. You know, you would either, they'd probably be sold before you even get them started eating or some shit or sold or fed off immediately or brought to a King Cobra breeder or something. But I mean, we're still at the level where we can mess around with that kind of stuff. We're just frustrating and good though. At the same time, I mean, sometimes it's rewarding. Sometimes it's disappointing. It builds character, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could say that. Our friend Dan in the chat said he has a Palmerston jungle that wouldn't eat, and he dropped its tub while cleaning, and then after that, it started hammering mice. 
damn. Well, whatever works. I wouldn't recommend repeating that. (laughs) I'm going to drop all my snakes now. But just like weird things like that, you know, like I guess. Or the the whole car ride thing, taking on a car ride. None of that makes sense. Well, they've been on a car ride. They went yeah, on a car true. ride from, from Dallas, Dallas to, to Philadelphia. Parking lots work sometimes. <laughs> I've had work, you know, going from like the second shelf to the fifth shelf, or something. But something as simple as that sometimes, like I reshuffle because I my OCD needs to make it all fit well. Like I, as snakes get sold or move on, and I can't have like gaps. Like so, moving them sometimes, and all of a sudden that one will start eating. I'm just like, well, whatever, man. I guess you. <laughs> Guess you decided it was time. Just didn't like that little space you're in. Yeah. So one question I wanted to ask you before we get going is, um, I really liked your pictures that you took of your black rats with the moss and everything. Is that just like yeah. something in your background? How do you get a rat snake to stay semi still to take the picture? And what was kind of your method there? You know, one day a buddy of mine at Sawfish Reptiles, he always takes his pictures outside and they always look so much better. You know, I have a little photo tent and that's how I used to take pictures and probably will have to do that in the winter because I don't want anything to die. But man, I went outside and was looking for a cool spot and I found a couple and I was like, all right, I'm just going to keep taking photos here. And I mean, nice thing about digital photography, it's all with my iPhone. I, you know, I'm too lazy to go break out like a Nikon or something. I just, um, I mean, it's pretty good pictures, I think, for an iPhone. Yeah. But, you know, I just put my hand over it and then have the camera ready and focused and, and take a bunch of shots for every two or three that I keep. Yeah, I probably took 40. Right. And well, the odd, I, you nail it on, like, the first three shots. You're like, oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, for you put have our a, hand over ours, it's going to bite you. Yeah, but you have a just perfectly lime green, mossy fucking rock in your backyard. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't grow that on purpose. I was just looking around and I was like, hey, this could look cool. I've been looking at Home Depot at like house plants and shit. I'm like, how can I make something look that fucking good? But it's not happening. Hey, in Pennsylvania, you probably have a lot easier time finding some moss than you did in Texas. That is true. I just need to start. I just need to uh, facilitate it in the city limits. Yeah. <laughs> You'll find that shit grows everywhere. You can't grow it yourself. I well, I could never grow moss for exhibits and stuff, but I don't know why. If shit grows on like you know sides of houses and it just grows everywhere, but I can't grow it in what I think is optimal growing conditions in an exhibit. But it looks good. I like the green, so I was like, ah, oh, shit, let's try it. Yeah. Winging it. That was just winging it. <laughs> I'm glad it looks cool. I'm glad somebody likes it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There's one that looks awesome. It's one of the Okatee photos I snapped. And, like, the colors on an OKT really have some, they're, like, really bright and have great contrast on the green moss. Because that's the I was, thing. I mean, a lot of my animals are red and orange just like that because, obviously, it's corn snakes. Um, so, yeah, something like that bright limish green would really work. So, it's fine. Do it up. Go look around. I'm trying, man. <laughs> Got to find a good rock, I guess, and bring it home. rock. <laughs> And we do have a last question that we have to ask everyone at this we point. Have to. We're forced we just, at this point. We are just um, we're pondering or pandering to, or pandering, pandering to James Lewis, who makes us ask this question every time. Ryan, what is your favorite pizza topping? Mm, I mean, cheese. 
Okay. All right, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll always eat a slice of cheese pizza. Always. <laughs> Obviously. You said, like, mm, so I was expecting, like, something, like, real cr- crazy, but I like that you're just cheese. <laughs> ah, straight up, you know. I eat, a, I mean, I have a six-year-old here, so I eat a lot of cheese pizza. <laughs> and a lot of chicken nuggets. Yeah, surprisingly not as many chicken nuggets, but tons of pizza. Because pizza's not just pizza. Papa John's is different. Pizza Hut is different. Yes. You know, all those are different. Snappy tomato that we have around here. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure it's different. Yeah, it's local. (laughs) Cool. What's your favorite pizza topping? Pepperoni. Pepperoni. (laughs) That's why, yeah, if you say anything more intense than pepperoni... That's where we you Actually, lose that's us. Actually, not my favorite. My favorite would be ricotta cheese. I like ricotta cheese on my That's good. So, like, the cheese on the cheese. Yeah, but we're super basic over here. Yeah, just as long as you don't say pineapple, basically. We're okay with it. What? You guys don't like pineapple on pizza? Yeah, absolutely not. And I like almost anything on a pizza. It's I'll just eat a little unnecessary. That's all. Okay. Okay. You ever had a grilled piece of pineapple? I yeah. don't like grilled fruit. That whole concept oh, is weird oh. to me. <laughs> oh, well, to each their own. But yeah. Um, if someone wanted to get in touch with you or ask you anything, where should they reach out to you? Uh, you can uh, message me. I keep looking at you guys' faces on the on the, my oh, screen instead of, like, the camera. You know, so, like, yeah. <laughs> Freaking out. I'm probably look like I'm looking down the entire time. Oh, but... we don't look at the camera because the camera's like way. We'd be like, oh, yeah, we up here. Like we never look at the camera. Oh yeah, I feel like you're looking at me in the eyes now. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> you got anybody can message me on Facebook um, as long as you're not a. I'll, if anyone friend requests me, I'll probably accept it. And after some mild uh, reconnaissance, make sure you're not a female uh, bot. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of those lately. But he gets oh, them all nice. the time, and they poke him and like wink, like do all the weird I stuff. I started getting the pokes. I was like, wasn't that from like 2012? Thank yeah. You. Can you still poke? Why can you still poke? Let's take away the fucking poke right now. We bot did that. They're like poke. That'll make them like respond. <laughs> that will make them look at my webcam. Yeah. <laughs> but a message on Facebook, uh, on both the business page or personal. Personal's better because I don't know if you guys. Uh, deal with messaging on the business page of Facebook. Oh my god! I I, I never get updates. Like I never get fresh notifications. It's easier for me. I get more updates than he does. I don't on Android. He started the page, and he's like the owner, whatever. I'm just like a whatever the next step down is, and I get any notification when someone like likes or messages us. I get all of them. He doesn't get any. And it'll be like, keep up your excellent respond time, and I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to throw a lot of thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> I need to respond to everything, no matter how silly, with a thumbs up. So yeah, there, rad.reptiles82 at gmail.com is my email. Rad and then a hyphen reptiles.com is my website. I know those are archaic, but I like having one. Yeah, I want to. It's, yeah, it's fun. Um, so yeah, feel free. To, I'm not a bashful guy, so you can message me at any point in time, and I just may not respond if I'm asleep, but... <laughs> but to maintain your excellent response time. Yeah, so definitely, like, message me personally. That's probably easier. <laughs> then I don't have to maintain that impressive response time. Yeah, that's exactly what we yeah. say, too. <laughs> like, it's, it's easier. It's, yeah. yeah. 
Um, okay, well, thank you, Ryan, so much for being on. I'm so glad we got to learn about zoo stuff. We don't get to hear that. That is true. A lot of the people who we have had on that worked at zoos aren't allowed to talk much about the zoo. Well, I mean, I don't think I went into anything too specific. I mean, Uh, what is there incriminating, or I don't know why. Maybe there is that we don't know. I don't don't feel like you incriminated anything. Dude, I hope not. Damn it. But usually Uh, people are like, no, like, like. People are real weird about it. I don't know why. I think I spoke really well of it. I mean, I, I, zoological institutions are important, and I'm all obviously all for it. So yeah. I've got nothing but positive things to say. Yeah, That's if anything, nice. you put off a positive image of zoological facilities and yeah, stuff like sure. that. So I don't. We'll see. We'll see if I have a meeting request from my boss tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, down to HR. Ryan, HR. <laughs> <laughs> okay great well thank you for coming on and if you want to reach out to us obviously if you're listening to this podcast you've already found this on youtube at port city pythons but we are always available on instagram at port city pythons and facebook at port city pythons and our website is portcitypythons.com message us on instagram or email me, and I that. forgot that there is one guy that emails me, so thank you. Our email is theportcitypythons at gmail.com. Yes, Mike. Because last you. time I said that no one emailed and me. And then Mike did. And Mike emails yes. me. So. Um, and most people, multiple people are asking who's coming on next week. And no, we will not tell that because then we have bad luck. But I trust the person But we are doing week. it next week. Even though it's Labor Day, we are doing a Labor Day show. It's going to be Sarah Moore. Wow. Okay. But I trust her to actually show up, so that's all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> Sarah Moore of Sarah's Snake Shop, she came out with a new corn snake book about all the um, origins of the snake mutations in the hobby. So it's a good history on all your different corn snake mutations and stuff like that. So it's going to be awesome. We're going to talk some weird corn snake shit that yeah, people are probably going to get mad at out why I like basically i'm not here because all their conversations go over my head so have fun with that and she's much better at this stuff than me so i think you guys will enjoy it especially all the people who ask me for more ids and stuff like that she's pretty much the one who should talk about it way before i do so tune in next week regular okay. time 7 p.m eastern boom See you in central bye thank later you, guys ryan. thank you guys so much for your thank you ryan thanks guys